Boom. And we're live. What's up, man? How are you? Nice cheers. Salud. Hey, hey, cheers, brother. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, too. By the way, congrats on the mustache. The mustache, <laughs> lower piece combo. That's uh, the anarchist guy, with that guy that, who's the mask? Oh, the Guy Fox. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. Perfect, right? Yeah, I was kind. Of, I was going more for a kind of uh, Doc Holiday. Val Kilmer is Doc oh, Holiday. Oh, dude. How I'm, I'm your Huckleberry. How good was he in that role? He was fantastic. On, mm. Many people have played Doc Holiday, but he's the best. So, uh, are you a prepper yourself? Because you do have one of them GPS watches on. So either you're like a hardcore <laughs> hiker. Or you just don't want to get lost. So you, you were waiting to see the paracord bracelet. Right? Like that's <laughs> that's, the, they always have that, right? Know, right? Has that ever come up? I, I, when do you ever unravel that thing? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that always seems to me like someone who like preps. At, you know, they, you just try a little too hard if you get yeah. the paracord bracelet. No, it's a kind of virtue signaling. You, you know? never know, though. I guess it's better to have it not to need it, right? Yeah. Than need it not to have it. I mean, it is kind of funny when I. Uh, so I've been I've been hanging out with preppers for about three years now, and. Uh, inevitably you start drifting towards the culture right as you're talking to people but every once in a while i'll see someone in a grocery store or whatever and i'm like okay they you know they got the bowie knife they got the like you know walkie talkie strapped i'm like wow you are really paranoid really yeah i know people walk around with their radios on because they want to be ready for action at any moment you live in the mountains wilderness type area i live in i live in big bear do you did you live there before you got obsessed with prepping no (laughs) so did you move there to accustom yourself or to uh acclimate yourself to the culture like so here's the deal i one of the communities that i worked with while i was writing this book bunker was a community in south dakota where there's there's 575 uh sort of semi-subterranean concrete bunkers that uh, were built during World War II, and they used to store uh, weapons in there, right? So they, these are bunkers to protect ordnance. Jamie's going to turn this towards you there. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Thanks. Um, I think and, I've and seen this before. Now they drive, uh, they drive like RVs in there and stuff. Is that the same? Yeah, exactly. So now okay. you've got now you've got like thirty or forty families that are moving into those bunkers, and. Uh, those families, super cool people, very generous, very kind. I spent a lot of time with them. And, uh, you know, they told me if, if, you know, if it ever hits the fan, come, you, visit, you, us. come visit us. Well, you know, we've got space for you. You're going to be safe. You're going to eat you. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so when the, when the pandemic hit, I, you know, of course I thought, well, is this it? Is this the moment we've been waiting for? So right. I, I send everyone messages and sure enough, they're packing up and they're going to the bunker field. And then I thought, you know, the obvious thing. Well, you know, what about my family? What about my elderly parents? What about who else? You know what I mean? The list starts growing yes. of people that you have to abandon to yes. save yourself, right? And uh, so I, I didn't go, obviously. Good for you. But but all my family lives in Southern California, my immediate family. And, uh, and uh, I started thinking about, like, what is the appropriate bug out plan? And And I think this is a good one. So basically... Big Bear is within an hour and a half of all my family members. And uh, I bought a cabin out there. It's got a quarter acre. It's, you know, relatively remote. Um, I can store some supplies. We can also use that as a family vacation home, right? Mm. So, so like, in the meantime, we can just enjoy it. Yeah. But if we ever needed to all sort of leave together at the same time, we could go to the cabin. And, it's kind of uh, crazy that you could be at the beach and you could drive two hours and you're in the snow. That's one of the weirdest things about California. I mean, we we have some really interesting terrain. Yeah. Here. Well, growing up here, I never I took it for granted, right? Yeah. And then now I've lived in 
four countries and visited maybe 40. And every time I come back to California, I think, damn, this place is unique. You How know, long did it take you to get to the valley? Uh, to get to the... To, right here? Oh, to here? Um, two hours? That's nothing. Yeah. yeah that's not bad two at and all. And but check this out. The really cool thing is that if you go off the backside of Big Bear Mountain, you can just drop down into the Mojave Desert. So you can be you can go from Big Bear to Joshua Tree in like thirty minutes, and if you really? if you can take dirt roads in a four by four, you can get there in twenty. Wow. Yeah. So I, so yeah. if you want to do mushrooms, it's a place, it's a good spot to live. It's a very good spot to live. Now yeah. you decided to write this book, and then you moved there. Was that the idea, or did you, I, you had you been thinking about living in a, in a place like that first, or? Uh, no, I, I never, I never really thought about a plan. Um, to be honest with you, I've been living in cities for 15 years now. I, I lived in London and then in Sydney. So I've been in Sydney for the past three years and you know, cities just suck the money out of you. Yeah. So I never, I never had any money. I never had any way to, to think about it. And I know the the pandemic has been, you know, tragic, unfortunate, terrible for a lot of people. But for me, it was like one of the best things that ever happened to me. I, I came back to California. Check this out. I came back to California to take care of my mom because she was having spinal surgery. I, I had just finished my three-year research fellowship at the University of Sydney that, that enabled me to write this book with the Doomsday Preppers. And I was going to a new job at University College Dublin in Ireland. And so I land in L.A. to take care of my mom for, for six weeks while she gets her spinal surgery. Bang. As, like I'm wheeling her out of the hospital, and they're putting in the, the, the tents in the parking garage at Torrance Memorial Hospital for the overflow of, of COVID patients. Oh, Jesus. So what, what time? So, when was this? So I, I, I guess this was February, early February. So it was just when it was starting to pick up. Yeah. And so uh, I'm with my partner, Amanda. We just moved from Sydney. And and uh, we we take my mom home and we just you know lock ourselves inside for a couple of months and kind of wait for this all to unfold. So I actually finished this book, like the final proofs of this book, I finished in lockdown in the early days of the pandemic. You feel relatively safe when you're in a place like Big Bear because it's woods and you know just like by the time the virus gets up here, and how's it going to get to you? You know what I mean? It's not like you're in these crowded areas. It's well, I, you know, the, the, the virus doesn't give a shit. It moves wherever it wants that's to. That's true. You know, you have all these people driving from L.A. up there for the weekend and, you know. Well, that's but, true. You were also saying that people are pretty cavalier up there, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, <laughs> they certainly are. Um, Did you, does it feel good to be tested? You, you were tested today. Do you yeah, feel good? I, it Do you feel like a weight lifted off of you? It Actually, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's it nice. feels great. Because you I was start a little, thinking. I was, like, I was actually kind of disappointed to see I didn't have the antibodies. Everybody you know? thinks they have them. Everybody does. Everybody I, in here is like, I think in January, I think back in January I had this cough. I'm pretty sure I had it yeah. and beat it. But I have to say, um, I guess my, my, you know, my anxiety about coming here was kind of ramped up by the, by the, po- by the possibility that they were going to say, you've tested positive. You're like, drag me out by my hair, you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> so, we wouldn't yeah. do that. No. But. If you were positive, I would just back up a little and put a mask on, I guess. What would we do? Would you feel comfortable doing a podcast with someone who's in the room who's positive? I think it's a bad move. We probably would, would be, be we'd do it in the parking lot. We could do that. <laughs> Just we'll fig, we would figure it out. If you were positive, we'd figure it out. We'd do it in the parking lot with masks on or something. But here's the thing about Big Bear, right, is that, is that um, when we were in lockdown in L.A., in the early days of it, like, Again, I'm speaking from a space of, very, of privilege here, you know, because my paychecks were still coming in, whatever. But like, I almost experienced a sense of euphoria. 
Like all my talks were canceled, my plane tickets. I canceled like four plane tickets. So the you know? pressure's like, relieved. Oh yeah, and I was just like, I can just hang out with my mom. Mm-hmm. This is great, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but you get you know you get through that initial phase, and then you get into the stamina phase, right? right? And th- like that's something we should really talk about because mm-hmm. when if you if you're thinking about locking yourself in a bunker, um, uh, you know stamina is going to be really important. And when they uh, shut down the beaches and the trails in Los Angeles, and I couldn't get outside anymore. That I mean, that had a devastating mental effect on me. Did they do that in so, Big Bear as well? They shut down the no, trails up there. No. no. So when we we moved up to Big Bear, immediately San Bernardino we County? could go we could go trail running again. We could be outside, and you know, is it San Bernardino so, County? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they're allowed. They have different rules. Lower population, all that jazz. Yeah, a lot more uh, space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the trail thing was a real bummer. Um, the, the locking off the beaches too. It's like, you know, there was in the beginning, there was so much scrambling because they weren't really sure how it was transmitted or when it was dangerous, when it wasn't dangerous. Now they're pretty sure, um, there was a study done that shows that it dies almost instantly in sunlight. So, uh, when you're outside at the beach, there's probably very little chance of, of spreading. So a lot of people took this that when the protests were happening, it's very little chance that it's going to spread during the protests, which is probably true during the day. But the thing is, the protests don't end during the day. People yeah. were jammed on top of each other all throughout the night, and it easily could have gotten you then. Yeah. They're showing that also even simulated UV light. There was a study done that showed that uh, artificial UV, uh, artificial sunlight, like simulated sunlight, also kills it. I had I was out in a Joshua Tree yesterday, and I went for a, a seven mile trail run. Damn, dude! You bring and some water? How hot is it out there? Dude, right I, now? I went through four bottles of water. God, that's scary. I actually I forgot my I usually have my Camelback that I run with, and I forgot it, so I just I stocked up on water. And anyway, I was slamming water, but I was on the trail like, I mean, way out, way out in the middle of of the national park, right? To a totally open space, and I and I run up on this hiker. And she like, you know, puts her backpack on the ground and she pulls the mask out and puts the mask on whatever, and mm. I, you know, and I'm like, the trail's pretty wide. Yeah. Um, I didn't say anything, but it's like, it's kind of like, People are know, scared, man. I know. People are scared. If you want to really be scared, I'm in the middle of a book right now. My buddy Matt Staggs recommended this. I want to tell people about this because this is fucking excellent. Now, I want to say before I say this, do not get this book if you have anxiety. <laughs> Just don't. Um. It's called Survivor Song. It's a novel by Paul Tremblay. I guess that's how you say his name. Paul Tremblay. It's fucking excellent, but it is terrifying, and it is about a pandemic. It's about a pandemic that hits the East Coast. It's a, a fake pandemic, like uh, a, a type of rabies that has uh, easily spread to people. There's got to be loads of people writing books about pandemics. Well, this right now, right? obviously was written a long no, time ago. For sure, like for sure. I, I think I don't know what year it came out. I don't know what it says here. I, I got the audio book. But I just wonder if we're going to reach a saturation point on the topic where people are like, I'm not touching a book that has anything to do with the pandemic, you know, after, think- Some people. after thinking about it for years. Some people. Yeah, but that's just – some people are just they, – they're angry. You know, like I had a friend who was across – my friend Bridget Fetessy. She was across the street from someone without a mask. No one around her. Someone on the other side of the street starts screaming at her. Put on your fucking mask. Put your fucking mask on. No one anywhere near them. Across a street. Yeah. People are That's, losing their marbles. I know. Well, it's it's a classic Foucault, right? We, we all start policing each other. Yeah. Well, 
it's also people's anxiety and insecurity and people that are emotionally and mentally unstable. Now's their time to shine because this is like this is like what they've been what people like preppers, I would imagine what prep. I'm not saying all preppers are emotionally unstable, but what preppers have been looking for is this moment where all of their anxiety and all of this uh, paranoia actually comes to fruition. Like, see, I told you so. Yeah, right. No, the, the justification yeah. uh, for the prepping. But I think a lot of that comes from uh, feeling belittled, right? Like they, they've been mocked. They've been made fun of. Sure. They've been, you know, people, are, people were prior to the pandemic embarrassed to admit that they were prepping, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, which in, is odd. Yeah, in fact... <laughs> I've been working on this book for three years, and about a month into the pandemic, I get this email from my brother who's here with me right now, and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, just so you know, I've got a, I've got a storage unit with some masks and some food, and, and I'm like, what? You didn't, you didn't think you might mention that to me? You know, <laughs> like, but, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, sort of deemed, it's almost deemed pathological, right? Like, people equate yeah. prepping to hoarding. It's yeah, like, well, yes. why do you need all that stuff, you know? Yeah. But the thing is, if you... In order to not stockpile in that way, right, you have to have so much faith in capitalism. You have to have so much faith in our social systems. You have to have faith that everything is going to hold together roughly in the way that it is right now. Right. And, of course, the world that we built, the society that we built, is, is incredibly new, right? You only have to go back a few hundred years, and it's like if you weren't stockpiling, you were effectively committing suicide. You couldn't make it through winter, right, because right. people are growing their own food, raising their own animals. Now it's like we, ha we have this expectation that you're going to be able to, you know, order your takeout or, you know, go to the grocery store and, and stock up. You know, think about this. Imagine this scenario. Imagine that the, that the lethality rate on this virus was like 10 percent. Right. right? What, like what do you have to do to convince those grocery store workers to come to work mm. at that point? No one's coming to work. Exactly. No one's driving the trucks. No one's going to deliver anything. And then what preppers would say is we're 72 hours to anarchy or 72 hours to animal, right? It's like you, once you shut down those kind of supply lines, right, our entire mentality starts to shift into a different mode. Yeah. And yep. it doesn't take long before you think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take something from my neighbor at this point. I'm hungry. My family's hungry. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it gets real scary. Or cooperate with your neighbor, hopefully. Yeah, you know, um, I uh, I hunt, so I have a lot of meat. And so um, one of the things that happened during the pandemic when it hit, I, I had a lot of people come over, and I, I gave them meat because I have uh, three commercial freezers here at the studio. You know, if you shoot an elk. Elk's 400 pounds of meat. That's a lot of meat, yeah. It's, the great thing is as long as the power stays on and I have electricity, I have frozen meat. So I can, I can give a lot of it out. So you got a backup generator? Yeah, I do. But it's, I'm not a prepper, you know, but I'm prepared in some ways. And then when all this came down, basically all I did is I stockpiled on a lot of dried stuff like rice, pasta, things that, you know, you can cook easily. Well, that, can, that's the thing is people get fixated on – prepping as this kind of, you know, I built a multi-million dollar bunker or whatever, whatever mm -hmm. spectacular stories that people hear, which, you know, I'm happy to happy to verify if you want to go get into those. But, um, you know, mo like prepping on a on a practical level, like everyday prepping is just it's just common sense. You yeah. Know, just having, you know, having enough food to last a few days. Yeah. And thinking yeah. through, you know, what what might happen, you know, right. in, a, in a blackout or, the, you know, the taps not working or whatever. Yeah. These things do happen. Yeah, they do happen, and but it, I wanted to get into the psychology of prepping, prepping because it seems to be conflated with uh, conspiracy theorists. Uh, 
mm. in some way. Like uh, preppers or it's the tinfoil hat brigade. It's like th those those type of folks, folks who think 5G is causing COVID. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, there's for whatever reason prepping, which should be just uh, prudence. You know, common sense, preparing, you know, having something that can purify your water if everything goes weird. Yeah. You know, I going, mean, going camping every once in a while just to get a sense of what it's like to be outdoors, yeah. you know, and pop your tent and pull your water out of a river. And, you know, it's great to have those practical skills. Yeah. It's camping is fun as long as you know it's not permanent. Isn't that weird? Well, <laughs> so, I mean, and this is the thing about disaster, right? Is that if, uh, if it has an endpoint, it's something that we can cope with, right? It, you yeah. know, so so take nuclear war for example, right? Like let's say let's say we get a, a text message on our phone. Remember in Hawaii in 2018, everyone got oh, that yeah, message yeah, that the yeah, ballistic yeah. missile was incoming, right? So yeah. imagine we get that message right now, and you're like, "Well, Brad, we we actually have a bunker underneath this this studio, right? So you go into the bunker, and but we know after LA's nuked, right, and it's gone, that if we stay in this bunker for 14 days, the radiation levels are going to be a fraction of what they were when that nuke hit, right? So, so you have an endpoint there. We have to make it to day 14. And that's why people were able to psychologically cope with it. Whereas, you know, the situation we're in right now, like, what it, we have, when is the endpoint? Like, that's why people are cracking, because mm -hmm. they, they can't see the end of it. Right. Well, they're cracking for a bunch of reasons. Yeah. First of all, they're cracking because the economic stability is non-existent. It's gone. 50% of all restaurants are dead. You know, I mean, how many retail shops are dead? It's it's terrible. Ra uh, uh, Yelp had some uh, statistic the other day that I was reading online about all the different businesses that have been impacted. We don't even know what's happening with comedy clubs. It's just guesswork right now. But I think in Los Angeles, a lot of them are probably going to wind up going under. Across the country, a lot of them are going to wind up going under. Restaurants, um, I had uh, uh, the owners of Felix. And uh, the head chef, Evan, and the owner, Janet, on the, the podcast recently, and they were explaining how the, uh, Felix is a really great restaurant in Venice, that almost every restaurant operates with a very small amount of profit, you know, they, their profit margin. What did she say, like 15%, 14%, something like that? Yeah, that sounds right. Some, I think something like that. So imagine all of a sudden that's cut to zero for several months, and then you're asked to occupy 50% of your restaurant, which is obviously going to diminish your profits radically as well. It's like it's, like it's just a survival game, and there's no end in sight, right? So here we are in July. No one anticipated this in March. We thought, you know, by the time June rolls around, everything's going to be up and running. No, here we are July. Everything's locked down again. And, and, and there's even talk of another stay-at-home order in Los Angeles, which is even scarier. So, so let's get back to your conspiracy theories. Okay. If someone told you that we would be in this situation a year ago, would you have believed them? Sure. You would have? I would have, yeah. Because the pandemic seemed like a realistic Well, because scenario. I've been to the Center for Disease Control. Right. I um, went to Galveston, Texas for the Center of Disease Control for a show that I did with my friend Duncan. And uh, Duncan Trussell and I went down there and we talked to these doctors that work with these viruses and they scared the shit out of us. We, t we went down there to f for a television show that we were doing for sci-fi, and it was basically on the idea of weaponized viruses. The, the, the basic premise of the show was, what if someone engineered a virus and released it on, our, on, you know, on the country, like a weaponized virus? And they said, that's not what we have to worry about. What we have to worry about is nature. That's what we have to worry about. Turns out, both, because yeah. this virus most likely had been leaked from a lab. What we're dealing with with COVID-19 
according to my friend Brett Weinstein, who is a biologist, and he detailed on a podcast that I did with him all of the different points of, uh, of evidence that, that lead to what he believes is a, a very likely scenario that it was released from accidentally released from a, a, a lab and not actually from a wet market, that the wet market's the cover-up. It's like the, the disease is too advanced. It, it has too many hallmarks and indicators of uh, a virus that had been tampered with for study. For, uh, for, for studying the lab and for the examinations and all the, the different tests that they would run. And uh, so you got both those things, right? You have, you have um, the possibility of something just morphing in nature, like many other pandemics that have happened in the past. And then what we have now, which is this weird virus that doesn't make any sense. I and mean, we were talking about all the different D- different symptoms that people get from it, neurological problems, blood clotting. I was reading this article where they were saying that uh, the people that have died from uh, COVID, when they've done autopsies on them, they found blood clots in every major organ. And they, they're like, this is astonishing. Like, this is so weird. Yeah, it does seem very unpredictable. Lungs, liver, kidney, just blood clots everywhere. It's like people are hemorrhaging. It's, it's very strange. It's a strange fucking virus. And the um, the transmissibility is that a word mm-hmm. the uh the, the 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 ease of transmission is terrifying it's so it's so contagious it's a ridiculously contagious virus so once we went to that center for disease control i started getting scared i saw the 2015 bill gates ted talk on uh pandemics and about the the possibility of a pandemic and i got scared of it too so i would have thought it's possible yeah i, w- I would never would have thought it's impossible so here's the thing. Regardless of, of where this virus came from, you have to imagine that uh, there are governments and individuals uh, who are now keyed into how effective this visit, this virus was at cripple, crippling uh, capitalist economies. Sure. Right? Because it's, the, thing, the thing is we created COVID's pathways, right? I mean, it's international flights. It's international trade. It's people moving around. It's, it's you know, the neoliberal global capitalist system that we built over the past 30 years that created the pathways that that, that took the virus everywhere at once, right? Mm-hmm. So if this were to be a test run, um, it's now proven to be extremely effective. And so you have to imagine that governments around the world, probably including the United States, are thinking, well, what else, you know, how could we, how could we weaponize this potentially? And this is the I thing. Don't know if the I mean, United States is thinking that, but well, I, I don't. Imagine. I don't. I don't know either. But the thing is, we, you know, the threats, existential threats that uh, we face now, have been multiplied exponentially, right? In the mm-hmm. past, in the past, you know, post World War II, right? We had. I mean, this is the first sort of global catastrophe, right? You know, world world wars, right? But then once we develop nuclear weapons, and we're we're just past the seventy fifth anniversary of the the Trinity test now. Uh, you know, once we create that ability to destroy ourselves and potentially the entire world, we have to live with the, with the possibility of that happening, right? Now, stack on top of that artificial intelligence, climate change, you know, synthetic biotech. Uh, all, of, all of these threats that we face are, are something that we have to kind of hold in our heads all the time. And I think it's cracking us mm-hmm. mentally to, like, think about these possibilities. So, um yeah, I mean, some of the preppers are conspiracy theorists, right? And they're they're spinning some really outlandish scenarios, uh, but a lot of them are just trying to work through these things, right? And rather than get caught in this kind of perpetual future tense, like you know, 
thinking about something terrible happening. They're trying to take action now in the present, and that gives them some sense of of, of peace, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it gives them a sense of like it gives them some solid footing in the present. And a lot of the preppers I talked to were um, uh, are not actually very anxious or paranoid at all, right? Because they have a plan. It's those of us who don't have a plan that are that are anxious. Did, well, you've talked to them post post. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have, do they feel vindicated? Uh, no, not really. No. I, what What most of them have told me is that this was a mid level crisis. Well, they're this, right about that, right? I mean, if Yellowstone blows, this is going to look like a cakewalk. Yeah, exactly. If we get hit with an asteroid, I mean, it's a wrap for humanity. Yeah. If there's a solar flare that takes out the power grid, we got real problems. This yeah. is minor in comparison when you look at the the actual fatality rate. For healthy people, it's very, very low. You know, it's less than 1%, much less than half of 1% for, for most healthy people. So when you look at what, what could happen if Yellowstone blows, that's a continent killer. Oh, yeah. That, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, we're talking about volcanic, volcanic ash clouding the sky. Nuclear uh, ki- winter. Yeah, killing, yeah. killing crops all, killing all over the United States. All over the world. Yeah. No, I mean, be... you got to have a jet. And go to New Zealand like instantly. <laughs> it's like you've, New, I don't even know if that's New Zealand is in a volcanic zone. I mean, this like this is one of the great uh, red herrings of our time that you know that all of these wealthy people are going to flee to New Zealand and find safety there. I mean, I also find it totally ironic that a lot of them are sort of you know libertarian free market capitalists that are quite happy to make money off this system, but when shit goes wrong, they want a really strong government to clamp down and take care of it. You know. Is that what they want? I think they just want a remote place to escape with a small amount of people and a lot of uh, wildlife resources and real natural beauty. Look, New Zealand's gorgeous. New Zealand's fantastic. I have I've, friends who go there every year. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time there. Since Matt I was, Lauer bought a crazy farm out there. He's got like a giant ranch. Well, that's, you know, it's, like, it's got the qualities. There? It's got, you know, clean water. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's English speaking. It's mm-hmm. got a stable government, you know, all of that. So. Abundance of wildlife and no predators. They got a, it's a weird situation over there. It's a, a hunter's paradise, apparently, mm. because, um, well, sort of. It's really, it's, it depends on your philosophy, but most, most hunters that are, I would say that if you if you look at like what what the idea of hunting is, the, the idea of hunting is supposed to be you get your your resources, your meat from the natural world. I want there to be a balance in the natural world. There's no balance in New Zealand. In New Zealand, they have to helicopter over these stags and gun them down because they're overpopulated. Because they they literally get to the point where they worry about diseases and there's no predators there. What, do you know the whole the whole history of how it's uh, populated with animals? No, I don't. It was they were brought over there by the Europeans in the 1800s as a, a, like a hunting sanctuary. They brought over stag and all these animals that don't exist in there, red deer, all these these uh, these invasive animals. But then they don't have any way to control their population, so they have these like fucking huge herds of these animals roaming over the fields. Luckily, there's not a lot of people, but there's a lot of controversy behind it. Like, wh- there's one recently that's going on right now I should tell people about. There's an animal called a tar. Have you ever heard of a tar? No. T-A-H-R. It's a fascinating animal because it looks like it's straight out of Star Wars. 
Um, I was going to say, it sounds like it's from Star Wars. I think it's an Asiatic animal. I think. I think it's native to like the Alps or some shit. I forget where it's from. Here, Himalaya. Yeah, there it is. Okay. It's a large, it's fucking weird looking, man. It's this crazy, hairy looking. Take that picture right there. Yeah, bam. Go large with that. Look at that fucking thing. What? Yes. Look at that thing. It's amazing. Well, one of the best, first of all, it's a delicious animal. And um, they are in New Zealand. And they're very difficult to hunt because they live in these like really high altitude, rocky areas that are very difficult to traverse, very hard for hunters to get to them. It's extremely dangerous. A good buddy of mine, Adam Greentree, was hunting one, and he fell and got really badly injured, and he had to get helicoptered out of there, and he was by himself. Really hard animal to get to. Well, they've decided recently, it's a very controversial decision, to eradicate them. So they're going to, um, even though there's just like this really thriving uh, industry where all of these people's livelihood depends on this animal, uh, these people in these rural communities, these people, hunting guides, all these different people that live off of these animals, they've decided for whatever reason, I'm not exactly sure what the reason is, but the New Zealand government has decided to eradicate these animals. It's, it's got to be this fantasy of getting back to the kind of pre-colonial past, right? Like if you eradicate all the animals that were brought in with colonization and you, you can get back to some kind of like indigenous stasis or whatever. I mean, maybe I know, they would have to bring back the host eagle. There's an enormous eagle that used to hunt humans that lived on New Zealand. They're the largest eagle that ever lived, lived in New Zealand, and they believe that the uh, Polynesian people wound up killing them all. Well, you gotta go. You gotta go Jurassic Park and get the DNA and resurrect. Is that thing, Polynesian right? people? Who the fuck lived in? It's not Polynesian people. Who who are the original settlers of New Zealand? The, the Maori. The Maori, yeah. right? Are they considered Polynesian? Uh, I think they were. Yeah, I think they were Polynesian sailors that landed there. We're so white. Yeah. We don't yeah, know shit. <laughs> <laughs> Polynesians are fucking incredible, though, if you think about the fact those people figured out how to get in a boat and go to literally the most remote spot in the world, with, which is Hawaii. Dude, have you ever seen their maps that are made out of sticks? No. Dude, they ha- they're, so they're these uh, they're 3D maps that are made from like sticks put together, and they can tell wind and air currents, and they can read the stars with them. That's how they navigated. With really? These, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, they're fantastic. Where did you see one? Uh, I don't know. Well, actually, my, my, uh, I did my master's degree in maritime archaeology, so I probably picked that up during that degree at some point. So you, you did uh, – some of your studies was, were in Sydney, right? Yeah, I, st- I started – I actually started here um, at the University of California. I did anthropology and history. I went to Australia to do a degree in maritime archaeology, and then I went to London to do a PhD in cultural geography. Oh, wow. So I've, ho- I've hopped four disciplines – did uh, you get anything, Jamie? Let me see what this looks like. Yeah. yeah, look at those things. shit. They're sweet, right? Wow. I, what is that? Obviously, I have absolutely no idea how to, oh my how to read those things. That's so weird. See, this so is, how do they tie them together? With twine? Or like what is... Yeah, I think it's twine. And what are those images supposed to represent? It's, what is it's, that? It's, like, it's the wind, the tides, and the stars. I think what is that are, word? Hold on. Scroll up. Micronesian? Whoa, Micronesian. You ever heard the word? Yeah, Micronesian. So that Micronesia is like um, uh, uh, Chuk. What are those four islands? Uh, Truck Lagoon. That's in Chuk, and I can't remember the other islands. But look how crazy that is. Yeah. God, I love learning new shit. So here's the thing, right? Is that is that one of the things that preppers are into is like reco- recovering these kinds of skills. 
So, you know, trying to learn how these things work and building them again. Uh, when I was at the University of California, I did two years of lithic technology where I, I you know, I can make uh, arrowheads, stone tools. Can you really? At, at you do all darts, stuff? axes. Yeah, I spent years doing that stuff. You know how to make an atlatl? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Can you throw one? You know yes. how to do it? Yeah, dude, we threw one at, at UC Riverside. Yeah. Where I was studying. Yeah, we made this atlatl dart and then we sort of like, you know, cleared out the 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 kind of alleyway in the experimental archaeology lab we were working. We were chucking this atlatl dart down in, the middle. Indoors or outdoors? We probably couldn't get away with that now, but yeah, outdoors. Yeah, probably not. Outdoors. outdoors. Now, when they taught you how to do all this stuff, when when they're talking about like building ancient arrowheads, is the uh, technology behind creating those, the, the craftsmanship, is it uh, theoretical or are they getting it down from the, the people that w where the knowledge has been handed down? Oh, it's definitely the case that the knowledge is being handed down. Um, and what's really interesting is that is – that, uh, I know you talked to Graham Hancock, but like the, the – so the, the earliest uh, uh, spear points – that we think are the are evidence of the earliest occupation of the Americas. These are um, Clovis. So he, he talked about Clovis cultures, right? Mm -hmm. Those Clovis points are so hard to make, dude. Mm -hmm. And they're they're making these like twelve, thirteen thousand years ago. So so it's essentially uh, you take you get a piece of rock, right? And you have to flatten the rock first, right? So you've got to send flakes with a hammerstone across the rock and create like a ridge down the middle. Mm -hmm. And then in one strike, you take that whole ridge off. And you create this flat expanse down the middle of the spear point with one strike. Yeah, and that's what you—that's what you haft the shaft to with some sinew or whatever. But the thing is that that one strike you have to do it on both sides, right? You have to make a flat edge on both sides down the middle of the spear point. It almost always cracks the thing in half. And what is the material that you're using for the striker, and what is the material you're using for the arrowhead? So if the the easiest stone uh, to flint nap with is obsidian. It's got a really, really high uh, silica value in it, and it's it's highly heated, so it's it's like glass, right? And that's what um, the Aztecs were were uh, making their weapons out of too. So you can see you can see obsidian weapons all up and down uh, North, Central, and South America. Um, but you can also work with like flint or chert. Those things are a little trickier, right? They're all over Texas. The Comanche left so many arrowheads. Uh, go to Gary Clark Jr.'s Instagram page. He has a fucking perfect arrowhead that they found on a, a friend of his ranch. It's it's amazing when you, you look at this and you go, okay, this is probably hundreds of years ago. Some guy sent this. and Look at that. Look how perfect that oh, is. Oh, that's gorgeous. Look how perfect it is. It's perfect. Dude, I'll make you one. <laughs> I can, well, I, I, can, I, I, can. I would appreciate that, but I, re I found one once. I was hunting in uh, Nevada. I was uh, doing a high country mule deer hunt, and I found one. And I fucking lost it. I don't know what happened, but it was just – it was a chunk. It had broken. But that one – go back to that one again real quick. That's perfect. Yeah. I mean, look at the – Oh, it's really nice. It's, it's not damaged at all. So what you see – What do you think that's made out of? Uh, I think it's chert. So chert often has this kind of chalky exterior that you got to get off of it before you chert. Yeah, I've never even heard of that. Yeah, um, how old do you think that is? If you had to guess, seven eight hundred years. <sighs> I think so. Check this out, man. One of the one of the coolest experiences I ever had. So I I did archaeology for about five years. I excavated in in Mexico and the Yucatan Peninsula, in Hawaii, uh, in Australia, and in southern and northern California. 
And uh, when I was in Mexico, we were we were working on this old village site. It's a po- post-classic Maya site. And we're, we're digging up, like, there's just loads of pottery, right? Because think about it. If you're, you know, you make a pot, inevitably you're going to drop and break that thing. And what do you do? You sweep it out the front door, you know? And so we'd find these huge um, uh, uh, pits that are just full of, of pottery sherds. And, you know, after a while, you just become totally desensitized to it. You're just chucking them in a bag and, oh, here's where we found 10 more or whatever. And then I, one of them I pulled out and it had a fingerprint in it. Oh, dude. And I'm looking at the thing and it's like sud- suppressed into the sud- clay. Yeah, suddenly I've traveled through time, right? I've gone back 1,200 years and I'm sitting there with, with, you know, sitting there with this person in their house with their thumbprint pressed into this thing. It really unnerved me. Wow. I mean, you know, in, in archaeological terms, meh, you know, it, it doesn't actually tell us that much. We got, we got 10,000 pieces of those pots, but on a personal level, that, you know, experiencing that visceral connection to the history of humankind is unparalleled. Right. It's because you know someone made the pottery, but it's almost abstract until you see that fingerprint. Yeah. But that's fucking awesome. God. Yeah, we also, one time I found this, we were walking through the jungle, we were actually surveying, we found a temple in, in the Yucatan that, uh, like, the local people knew about, but no one from the university had seen it, and so this guy's like, oh, you want a temple? Yeah, the temple over there. <laughs> you know, and so we're, like, ha- hacking through the bushes with our, with, through the vines with our machetes, and, uh, and we come up on this temple, and I was like, oh, man, this is, this is crazy. Like, how many people have seen this thing in, in the past, you know, 300 years? And then there were kind of some central stairs going up the middle of the temple. And I went there and looked on the ground and there was this, like a, there was this figurine there. Uh, and it had, it had eyes and like a kind of a, a little hat, but it was like somebody had made this thing out of clay and pressed it together. Um, I never figured out how old that was. I mean, it could have been made more recently. Did you take it? Kind of weird. Uh, we, we bagged it and tagged it, as they say in archaeology. <laughs> it went back to the lab. What are the rules on that? Like if you if you go to a temple, they take you to a temple and you find something that's there. What do you, are you allowed to say? I'm a scientist. Well, okay. So I became really uncomfortable with the idea that you know because I had a degree, I had some kind of authority over other people's culture. Right. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, and I I always felt like well that you know that village that's there that's their shit. Why are right. we taking it? Right. You know. Um, and obviously, it's for the advancement of knowledge, and maybe it brings some benefit to their village, but we don't know. Right. So uh, this is eventually what drove me out of archaeology. Um, for my my master's thesis, I went up to Northern California, and I worked with this tribe called the Winnemum Wintu. And uh, they it's a, it's a pretty tragic story up there, man. They they had been there for thousands of years, and um, you know we we. Americans decided that they were going to uh, build a giant dam so they could have a reservoir up there, and they and they inundated all of their ancestral homeland. So like all of their spiritual sites, all of their graveyards. I mean, all this stuff went underwater. So I'd spent two years uh, doing a degree in mar- maritime archaeology. I'd been diving shipwrecks all over the world, and I and I went up there and I said, let me let me dive let me dive in the in the reservoir and. You know, I've got my underwater camera, and I, you know, I said I'll take some photos. I'll bring them back. We can have a chat about it. And the spiritual leader of the tribe, Kayleen, she says, "All right, well, why don't you just hang out for a bit, and then maybe we can do that later." So, like, days turn into weeks, 
and then you know a couple months and I'm getting nervous I'm like I, I have to write my thesis I have no I don't have my I don't have my data and right during these months you're hanging out with I'm these just, people yeah I'm just hanging out there you eating dinner with them just yeah chilling? yeah exactly I'm good how they, do you have all this time yeah we actually went uh well it's but it's the degree right like like that's what I'm there to do I'm doing my field work and you can just hang out for months yeah but I'm supposed to be like doing research and, right. ri- and writing a thesis right, right. you know and so I, I, after a while, I press her. I'm like, look, I've got to, I've got to do something. And she said, you know what the problem with you white people is? You're obsessed with stuff. You just want to get your hands on the things, you know. And she said, if you want to know about our culture, you've been hanging out with us this whole time. What can you tell me about our culture? Like, why do you need to get that st- that that all that stuff that's you know underwater out there? Why do you need that? You know, you can just talk to us. So that was sort of my bridge from moving from archaeology into cultural geography, mm. which is much more about, you know, thinking about people's relationships with places and landscapes. And, and you know. their culture is documented in what way? Like how, how are they maintaining their historical records? Well, that's what – this was actually my – one of my first academic articles is I, I wrote about how a lot of their religious ceremonies – had changed because the places that they used to go were now underwater, right? So in, so in one case, there was this, uh, there was a rock um, that young women went to as part of a puberty ceremony, and it used to be above water, and they had that ceremony in the spring, but now when the, uh, that's when the, uh, the waters are high, right? So now they do it in sort of drought season so that they can still get to the rock. And so they had they had changed the whole kind of, you know, cultural their cultural fabric had been altered by mm. that inundation event mm. and basically you know the point that she was tr- trying to get across to me was like that didn't break us like we're still us even even though these things have had to change you know and that it was an education for me as an archaeologist because you know when you when you go into a place with that very kind of like data driven empirical mindset you know you want you want hard facts that that make sense that you know that you can you can write up clearly and and what she was telling me was something that was a little bit more it was more nuanced it, you know it was difficult to pin down it was more you know qualitative right and so i had to i had to grapple with that and that was a that was a big learning lesson for me so in this but when you're dealing with things that are more nuanced you you still need to kind of know what happened and when it happened. So how were they keeping records of what happened and when it happened? Well, they had oral histories, but I could oral also, histories. Yeah, but I could also go to um, uh, the uh, Bureau of Reclamation, the Forest Service. You know, there were, I, w- I was actually working for the Bureau of Land Management at that time. But so, I mean, so those federal agencies have records of what happened, right? You know, with, I mean, you know, with the building of the dam and what was recorded beforehand and all of that. Which is kind of fucked that they did that, right? Yeah. But uh, the but I, but I mean internally. I mean in the tribe, everything is orally? Yeah. I, you know, there's probably more people writing things down now these days. But, you know, they've got oral histories that go back a long time. When I was in Australia, get this, man. I, I, I was uh, um, talking to uh, an Aboriginal clan out there and they were telling me that in the Sydney Harbor – they can actually tell – like they can draw you a map of what is underwater in the Sydney Harbor because they have a cultural memory of when that wasn't underwater that goes back tens of thousands of years. And they have passed that down. They actually retain that memory. So they have a pre-Ice Age memory when the oceans were less deep. Yeah, I don't know if it's pre-Ice Age, but the, the water levels were 
You know, right. Yeah. So the, the water, water level's a little lower. It has to be pre-Ice Age if it's before 10,000 years. Yeah. Right? So these people had this idea of what was going on, and they just kept passing it down generation to generation. Yeah. And this, how accurate is their 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 memory of it i don't know i mean i'm sure i'm sure people are doing research on that but you know if the if you look at those those um uh the dot drawings you know those like traditional paintings that you see uh that are often paintings of landscapes uh-huh. some of those have been mapped onto uh you know aerial imagery and they're startlingly accurate right and so you have to wonder it like how how did people who didn't have those aerial views get that view down on the landscape, right? Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. Do you do you stitch that together by just knowing the place so well that you kind you can kind of depict it in that way, or is there some kind of? I mean, you can get all hippy dippy about it, and it's about astral projection, or people were like taking hallucinogenics and flying across the landscape, or what you know. Yeah, it's when you look at ancient maps that are really accurate. It really is kind of amazing that they did all this stuff from a, a land level. Well, they did. They did it looking down. They they figured out from traversing, going around the circumference of a continent. You know, when they when they when they would do that, if they would go around the outside of a continent and mark it, and then you look at it, and it's stunningly similar to what we take today with satellite imagery. That really is amazing. It is amazing, and you know, we spend a lot of time talking about how how advanced we are now, right? How, like, mm-hmm. what, what we've done with technology. But we don't talk a lot about all these skills that we've lost. Sure. You know? um, so that's why I like going out into the landscape. I, I love going out for a couple of days, just hike, you know, hiking through the woods with a compass, you know, figuring it out. Leave, turn the phone off. Leave it at home. I mean, give someone yeah. a sextant and tell them, figure your way across the ocean. Right. Yeah, good luck. Right? <laughs> I mean, th- just looking at one of those things. Or how about that um, ancient Greek computer thing? What is that called? Oh, the, a- the Anti- abacus? No, 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 no. That's a counting thing. The, 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 that, that, there's a device that they found that consists of uh, a myriad of moving gears that took forever for them to try to understand exactly. It's called the anti. I'm gonna fuck up the word. You know what I'm talking about, Jamie? Oh, yeah. yeah, Jamie knows what I'm talking about. There, there's this this thing that they found that's intensely complex, and it's thousands of years old. And they found it in a shipwreck, and um, they had to to try to back engineer what this fucking thing is and how it worked. But it's astrolabe, yeah. I think, right? Astrolabe. Uh, um, I don't think. Two-dimensional model of the celestial sphere. That's that's really cool. That's cool. That is a different thing, though. It, it is really cool. Pretty amazing. Um, the original smartphone. That's funny. But no, <laughs> there's it's a it's a an ancient Greek. Essentially, it's an ancient computer. Just pull up ancient computer anti. That's what I mean. I typed in ancient Greek ocean exploration tool. No, 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 but it's not that. It's oh. not an ocean explanation, oh, exploration okay. tool. It's actually like a computer. It's an, God damn it. I w- wish I wrote it down. It's, um, the word is anti, that's it. Oh, that's the it. Anti therica thing. Yeah. Kythera. That's it. So click on that thing. They found that and they're like, okay, what in the fuck is this? And this anti, go, so I could read it, An- Antikythera mechanism, a 2,000-year-old computer. And they found this. And 
they had to try to figure out what this is and see how they've kind of 3D mapped it and, Whoa, and reimagined. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I don't even know what they used it for. Let's let's go, let's click on that. What is the anti that the, the article to the right on Daily Express? Oh, that's of, uh, okay. Yeah, let's see what it says. Uh, Google Doodle marks the discovery of the ancient Greek computer. So this is track and calculate position of the moon, sun. Yeah. Okay. Position of the so, moon and sun and planets, as well as predict the dates and colors of <laughs> colors. So it is a celestial device. Yeah, in some way, but all it's a computer, right? So this thing, this 2,000-year-old device, was even capable of adding, multiplying, dividing, and subtracting. So they found it in uh, May 17, 1902. And uh, it was discovered uh, in a Roman cargo shipwreck. For years, they were baffled by the purpose of the mysterious object and initially assumed the mechanism was a gear or a wheel. But the archaeologists soon discovered that the device was a complex machine capable of various fac factions. The Antikythera mechanism gathered interest in the 1950s, and its complexity, function, and computational powers has led it to be dubbed the first ever computer. Fucking crazy. Don't, dude, don't you wonder how much stuff we have lost? Oh, yeah. You know, or how much stuff is still in the ground? Oh, yeah. I and mean, it kind of haunts me. I could, you know, yeah. you, you could go crazy thinking about when we just go start yeah. digging up everything and try and unveil all these ancient mysteries. Well, you really could. <laughs> you know, particularly when you think about, um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, you, you said you know about Randall Car or Graham Hancock, but you know about Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson, the two of them sort of combined their uh, their data and their research. And Randall Carlson is an expert in astrological uh, or, uh, excuse me, uh, asteroidal or meteorological impacts. What would you say? Meteor impacts? Right. Uh, asteroid impacts. I think, asteroid when, I think impacts. once it hits the Earth, it's an asteroid. Yeah. Um, and he is a proponent of this theory that is gaining a lot of traction that the Ice Age ended abruptly because of an impact. And it's, uh, it coincides with soil samples, with um, these um, samples that they've shown that show a lot of that trite, is it called tritonite, nuclear glass? Yeah. That, that Trinitite. Trinitite, thank yeah. you. That, from the Trinity Project, right? Yeah. yeah. They, they found this stuff when they do core samples somewhere in that neighborhood of 12,000 years, which is the neighborhood where the Ice Age ended, scattered all throughout Europe and United States and they believe that something happened, some sort of an impact, multiple impacts around 12,000 years ago. It ended the Ice Age abruptly and probably caused a lot of flooding and probably was the, the origin of the Epic of Gilgamesh flood story, Noah's Ark flood story, and also why there seems to be some sort of a reset of civilization. There's a pre-12,000 years ago technology, and then there's sort of a dead zone of several thousand years, and then things reignite again after that. Well, it, it, it lends credence to um, uh, that kind of oral memory too, right? Yes. If like if like if that memory has been passed down, and it's what's left is this kind of kernel, mm -hmm. right? There's like so, there's something there that we're attaching stories to to make sense of it. Yeah, and this is where the conspiracy theories come from too, right? Like one of the one of the preppers that I spoke to, um, who's actually here in California. Um, the first time I met him, he started talking about Planet X, ni mm. Nibiru, Nibiru, right? Nibiru. Yeah. yeah, and he was he's it's all Zechariah Sitchin. You ever read his stuff? No, fascinating weirdo stuff. Well, he's so he so he told me 
you know, Nibiru is Nibiru mm-hmm. is is hiding behind the sun, and it's going to emerge. And the last time it emerged was four thousand years ago, and that's where the that's where the flood story comes from because it's going to create a pole shift. So the North and South Pole are going to flip, and that's what creates the tidal wave event. And so he told me that he was building his bunkers to be submerged in two hundred feet of water. Well, he might be adding to the story. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, but what's that's inter- part of the problem. But what's interesting there is you kind of you know there's a. There, with these conspiracy theories, there's always a kernel of truth, right? Mm-hmm. There's always a kernel of something that you yeah. can hold on to, but then it just gets spinned in a slightly weird way. And I think what some, some of it is kind of displaced anxiety, right? Because we – like these disasters have happened. We know they have happened. We know that they will happen. We don't quite want to admit it, right? Right. but it's a lot easier to pin it on some kind of you know impossible event than just to decide that like the world is chaos and we have to deal with it. Yeah, there's many, many, many points of chaos. It's not just aliens. <laughs> exactly. The, the Zechariah Sitchin is fascinating. You should, I mean, I'm not saying I buy into any of his theories, but what I am saying is what he did expose that is undeniable was the rich history of illustrations from Sumer that are really fascinating, um, particularly. The origin of the the uh, caduceus, the origin of the double helix DNA, that seems to uh, be it's. When you look at that that sign that that symbolizes medicine, you know the two snakes crossing together, mm-hmm. that originated in ancient Sumer, and it originated with a lot of these ancient clay tablets that showed what could be. It's, it really is open to interpretation, right? But what he interpreted, the way he interpreted, and he's got a very extraordinarily unusual interpretation of the Sumerian text. And his interpretation of Sumerian text is that it is a historical record of these beings that came from another planet and genetically manipulated human beings. And the crazy thing is, when you look at these clay tablets and the illustrations, you see these strange things. Like you th- see these godlike creatures holding these humanoid creatures that are much smaller than them with tails. They have tails like monkeys. You see the entire solar system. We're talking about 6,000-year-old clay tablets, right? Back then, the, the general consensus was that the world was flat. If you, if you had talked to, you know, many you know, m- many people from many different cultures, they did not think that the the solar system had a sun in the center and that there was planets that were orbiting it. Well, they had a depiction of the solar system, not just a depiction, but all of the planets in the proper order. Like, pull up the image of the Sumerian uh, solar system. This is 6,000 years ago. Look at this picture. So these gods, look at that. The sun in the center... All the planets, no extra planets, all the planets. Is Pluto in there? Um, I think it was. How many we got there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Well, they they counted the moon as a planet, which is odd. And then they counted Nibiru. Nibiru is this planet that they claim, that's it right there, that's on this 3,600-year elliptical orbit. Right. Now, there's no evidence in Nibiru. Right. There's no evidence that that's true. But who knows how much of this, you know, we're getting from these people that are interpreting this language that's essentially a dead language. No one can even speak it. So how much fuckery is involved in that? 
I don't know. I mean, I'm a moron. I'm, I'm not a, a religious scholar. I'm not a, a, a linguist. I don't really understand this stuff. But I do know that the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is also a Sumerian tale, sh shares a lot of similarities with the Bible, including yeah. the similarities between the, the flood stories, the origin stories. You know, there's there's just a lot of weirdness to that stuff. But the fact that these people had this story of the Anunnaki and the Anunnaki, in, in according to Sitchin, the, the literal translation is those from heaven to earth came and that they had come here and that they had, you know, done some. And this is his interpretation. They had done. And by the way, there's a website called Sitchin is dot com. And you can go there. And this is a, another scholar of uh, Sumerian history that refutes all of his claims. Who's right? Who's wrong? I don't know. But it's it's really weird. Just the, the stuff that you can't get away from is really weird. And that's the, the solar system, the fact that they had this d detailed map of the solar system. Again, you're talking about, when I say detailed, they scrawled it on clay tablets 6,000 years ago. But clearly the center is the sun. It even looks like the sun. It's much larger than anything else. The sun's a million times larger than Earth. And it's a, just this big thing. And then you see all these things around it that are supposedly representative of Jupiter, Neptune, uh, um, Venus. It's, it really does look like Mars, Earth. Like there, it really does look like this is their drawing on clay of the solar system. Like, how the fuck did they do that? Yeah, what I know, what I, were they doing? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And I, I think it's certainly worth, you know, wherever we fall on these debates, on, yeah. on, it's certainly worth talking about, right? And it's worth investigating. And when I when I started working with, with uh, these doomsday preppers, I had I took a lot of heat from some of my, my friends in academia. What you did know, they say? say? say well, saying, well, that, you know, they're, they're right-wingers. They've got disgusting political views. They're racist. They're misogynist. They're, they're buying into conspiracy theories. Why would you give them airtime, basically? Let me stop right? right there. Why would you generalize an entire group of weirdos? Well, exactly. Like that. That's so crazy. Exactly. But, and what, but, but what do you think that is, though? What is the, the motivation to do that? Well, it's 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 people tribalizing, right? It's, yes. pa it's part of this par partisan divide that we're experiencing, partic right. academics, particularly in this country. Yeah, yeah. Well, or right and left, or yeah. whatever whatever binary you want to pick, you yeah. know. And and for you know, I mean, we could go over the reasons why we've ended up in this situation, but we are, um, you know, we're running headlong into into a very partisan age. Yeah. And you know, I feel like the solution to that is. Actually, you know, it's it's going and spending time with people that you disagree with, right? It's extending yes. some empathy, right? And it's not necessarily about giving people voice, but it is about giving people space and time, yeah. right? And so, uh, I have to be honest. You know, a lot of these preppers I hung out with, it was it was hard to hang out with them. You know, and, how so? Well, this one of the guys, uh, you know, did this thing where every time we were meeting, he would he would rate women as they walked by. She's a seven. She's a nine. She's what, you know, and it was, it was really hard not to interject and say, man, she's just grocery shopping. Leave her alone. <laughs> you know, um, you know, the conspiracy theories mm. were, were constant, but there's also a, a kind of, uh, we can think about, about like people who are prepping on the everyday, like the, you know, uh, the person who just cares about taking care of themselves and their family, and maybe they're interested in building community. Right. Um, but then there are the people who are selling the antidote to their fears. I, in, in the book, I call these people the dread merchants, 
right? The people mm. who are going to sell you the bunker, you know. For, like Jim Baker and his uh, oh yeah, Jim Baker's food. Oh man, his survival water. Yes. How how amazing are those <laughs> buckets of food that you could use as the base of a table? Have oh, you dude, seen that whole have, video? I love those, and he, and he talks about using them as portajohns. and uh, yes. yeah, he sells the Bible buckets as well. <laughs> have you ever Bible seen, buckets? What's the, a Bible bucket? It's just a bucket full of Bibles, you know, just <laughs> just in case. Right? Why do you need more than one but, Bible? Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, maybe you got a big family. Maybe you want to uh, go Old Testament if shit gets really weird. <laughs> Have you ever seen the the Vic Berger remixes of the Jim? Yes, ba- I have. Oh man, yes. they are so much fun. Yes, yeah, so. I got really addicted to those when I was working on this project. It was kind of my. It became almost like a um, uh, a mantra, you know, yeah, just having like, these running in the background. It's so strange that he was the guy that was attached to the Jessica Hahn controversy back in the 1980s. I mean, I. Remember that? Yeah. Do you remember the Jim Baker? Like he had had an affair with this woman and it became, for whatever reason, this big news. Well, that's the same guy. Because because then we we still expected people to be guided by their moral compass. You know, everyone's a hypocrite now. Right. Do you remember then there was Jimmy Swagger got caught with a hooker and he was crying, I have sin. Uh, Do you remember that? You remember that? That was good. No, yeah, no one confesses anything <laughs> anymore. No one admits the anything word anymore. Bible bucket. <laughs> yes, I love that one. Ah, a bucket of Bibles. Why not? That's a, only fifty bucks. That's so, a pretty good deal. How many how many Bibles you get? Twenty four. Wow. I think it's what it says. Should we get a bucket of Bibles? I feel like we should have one at the get studio. One. Get one. I feel like we should have one. At the I don't want to feed the beast, but you should you should get God, one. If he gets fifty bucks from me, what the, what the fuck? Well, we, need, we need at least a table. Table worth, right? Right. A table's worth it's of like Bibles. Six buckets. Can how you many, get how many buckets makes a table? But that but shouldn't we get the food? Or we should just get the Bibles. Well, one bucket of Bibles and five buckets of food. <laughs> <laughs> but his fucking food. I love watching him feed the audience. You, you know, can with the get gi- real, from the giant trough. You can get real good freeze dried food that'll last forever. You don't Hell have to yeah, get his bullshit. Yeah. So um, what the fuck? Creamy so, potato soup. Oh my god! Oh, look no, at that disgusting. slop. Shovel. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and they do a big thing of rice, and then they do, and they mix it all together. You know, yeah, the big um, bucket of slop is poured on top of it. Googlepeakrefuel.com. This is my friend Chad Mendez has a really delicious um, company that that they make actual. I, I think is it freeze dried. I think his stuff is freeze dried or, or dehydrated. I'm not sure, but the, people are doing it now. Freeze dried. Yeah, people are doing it now where you could keep this stuff forever. This is my buddy Chad's stuff. This is really good for you. It's actually delicious and healthy. Yeah, and, and he's doing Mylar bags, too. That's that's much yes. better than doing buckets. Yes, and he's uh, Chad is a former UFC uh, fighter who's a great guy who's actually a hunter. And he, he makes every everything's organic and really healthy. And, and it, when you reconstitute uh, it, it actually tastes good. So that's you don't sweet. have to buy that Jim Baker bullshit you can actually buy this check this out i I went to this i went to a community in uh just outside of dallas and uh they were this is a a budding prepper community and they had built this this 50 foot fountain ringed by the four horses of the apocalypse oh christ i mean it's like in a you know in a rural (laughs) county uh, in a town with like 300 people you know they bought all this land it's like it was a square mile of land um, and it had these these uh, sort of gr- green lagoons in there that were dredged out for for uh, grazing cows at some point, and they were going to revitalize these into these kind of like crystal blue lagoons with white beach sand, and they were going to build a bunker community in there um, called Trident Lakes. So the 
the lakes or the uh, the Blue Lagoons. And he told me that their their plan was to do a kind of outer perimeter wall around this that was going to be a, a a giant berm around shipping containers. So essentially, the wall would be hollow, and he said he was going to fill it with buckets of food and whatever. And I just I kept imagining you know Jim Baker's Bible buckets just lined <laughs> up down the walls in this thing, you know, to keep intruders out. Just yeah. a fucking twelve foot high wall of Bible buckets. But he, I, I, they had this this ex Navy SEAL working for them, and uh, I'm waiting to meet with the CEO, who's like it, he put he's kept me there for about three days, you know, trying to trying to interview this guy. And in the meantime, they put me on the phone with this ex Navy SEAL, and he, he's uh, going to go over their security plan with me. So he tells me about the wall, and and then they're going to put up a chain link fence with barbed wire, and they're going to have dogs and CCTV cameras, and they've got a kind of no man's land between the the fence and the shipping containers, right? And uh, uh, he told me, you know, as a geographer, you've got to understand, you got to control the geospace, you know. Huh? The geospace. What's you the geospace? Co- I don't know, man. <laughs> it's just, I I guess it's just space. You know, you got to have control of it. But he said, uh, "Don't you love when people use extra words?" I know, yeah. But then he, but then he started going down this rabbit hole where he's like, "You know, we did some, we did some googling." Oh, there's there's Muslim groups in Texas. Oh my goodness! And I was like, "Oh, okay." And he <laughs> and he goes, and you know, it's it's not just Muslim groups. It's not just just Black Lives Matter. There's white nationalists. There's people. We don't like any of those extremist views. And I'm thinking, well, this is. This is kind of extreme, like what you, what you guys are planning here. You know? We don't like any extremists. We don't like white nationalists. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I met I met some really interesting people on this project. Um, uh, you know, there there were there were people who were kind of on the deep end of things. Mm-hmm. I met this one. I met one guy in Kansas. I'm sure I'm sure a lot of your your listeners will have run into this place, a survival condo in Kansas. No, I've never heard of it. Dude, it's it? awesome. So there, so there's survival condo. Survival condo. Is it actually a condo? It's a condo. So the, one the, condo. This guy, listen to this. This guy. So there's there's two kinds of um, uh, nuclear missile silos from the Cold War that are in the Midwest. The first kind is a kind of uh, horizontal one where they would lift the missile up to fire it. And then the later ones they built, the Atlas F silos are vertical. So they're, they're 200 feet deep, and they had a you know nuclear-tipped ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile. Jamie in there. found it. Yeah. So so bunker I bunker home I, with a price tag of two million. Oh my god, two well, million bucks. So it's it's one and a half million for a half floor inside this thing, or three million for a full floor. Why but is dude, this? Dude, this guy converted the entire missile silo into an, a subterranean condo complex. So those are like LCD screens that make it look like you're outside. Yeah. Oh my god, that's so <laughs> nuts. So and you know what he told me? Wait, wait what, for it. Hold oh. on. <gasps> he's got a pool. Yeah, he's got a pool with a waterfall. Beach. Actually, looks pretty dope, dude. There's a rock wall. It's fantastic. It's got a theater, yeah, pool we, table, we rock watched, wall. We watched 007 in there. Wow, what is that? That's where they melt the bodies. That's where they're <laughs> they raising they're raising in fish in there. Tilapia. They're raising oh there. my goodness! Yeah, they've got an FDA certified uh, growing facility in there. Duncan went to one of these places when I was telling you I did that television show where we went to the CDC. Yeah. Duncan met with these people. I don't know if it was this group, but it was real similar. Same penthouse was the penthouse. That's where Drake lives. Right? <laughs> He's got a – some ballers probably have some sort of crazy setup up there. So get this. The guy, he's he bought oh, this – Oh, that's he, pretty nice. He bought this thing for $300,000, the missile silo. Is he selling these? He, yeah. And he dumped, I think, $10 million. Four and a half million? 
Yeah. Jesus. That's the penthouse. That's fat, though. That's a fat house. Would yeah. you live there? Yeah, totally. If you did, would you have like a velvet robe and invite people <laughs> over with a with a like a, a, a some crevassier and a snifter? Come sit, on over. Sit there and smoke my yeah. pipe on top of my Bible. Cigars. Bucket. Don't you want cigars in a place like that? You're a baller. You don't have time for a fucking cigar. Cigars you have to or a pipe rather. Pipes you have to relight. It's annoying. You're a mover and a shaker. You're in a condo that's four and a half million dollars under the ground, protecting <laughs> protecting you from bombs. Well, so I could, so I'm down there like we're a hundred feet underground. How they get their air? And I'm inside. He's he's got uh, redundant filtration systems, uh, pulling air from the outside. I mean, pulling air with a mechanism like he's got nuclear, biological, and chemical air filtration systems. He's also got a volcanic ash scrubber. So if the caldera does blow, he can actually scrub the ash out of the Come air. Come on. Yeah, no, serious. So he, Larry Hall told me that How much the, ash? the guy who built this, Larry Hall, told me they could stay in there for five years. But then you're no hanging doubt. out with Larry for five years, <laughs> smelling his he, farts, he listening does, to his stupid jokes. <laughs> he, he does have a condo in there. So does yeah, he? You're not going to escape that. Four and a half million bucks. And where is this again exactly? In Dude, the, it's in the middle Kansas? of Kansas. It's in the middle of a bunch of cornfields. There's nothing out there at all. <sighs> I have a buddy who lives in Iowa right now, and I'm trying to get him to move. <laughs> you don't want to, I mean, there's issues out there, man. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems is how do you get to it, right? You're going to have to I mean, hike. Yeah, it's well, take it, you weeks. It, but it depends on what kind of disaster you've got. Right, right? that's what you, I'm saying. Hike. You, yeah, he's got a. Uh, if if you buy into one of his packages, he's got a like SWAT style uh, bulletproof vehicle, and he'll, oh, he'll great. come pick you up. You know that. Mm, great. Then you're hanging out with Larry in a bulletproof vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna have to thank him for saving your life. <laughs> you know what I asked? I asked him about the security guards, right? Because he's got these camouflage security guards with uh, ARs standing at the gates and they, you know they roll the gate open when you get there and they let right. you through and I said dude what what keeps the security guards here after the caldera blows or right. you know whatever and uh, you know I asked if they had space in the bunker and they didn't so I I mean I guess you just lose your exterior security when the they don't have a fucking security condo Larry exactly. stop being such a greedy fuck he needs someone like you around to like Give him like sort of a peripheral view or uh, an objective view, rather, of the outside. Like, hey, Larry, you, you're missing this. You got well, a, got a hole in your theory. So in my in my previous life, Look at um, all those the security people. Yeah, they're, they're a, like a shitty fucking action movie. <laughs> Look at these people. That's Adam there's, Curry in the middle. That's our buddy Adam. Look at him closing on that guy in the middle with the black vest. That's fucking Adam Curry. That's Adam. Is that Adam Curry? That's the Podfather. He's he's <laughs> he's gonna do his uh, his podcast, no agenda, from the condo. That's what he's doing. Some pretty sweet trucks. They oh, are wow. sweet. Yeah, it's not gonna lie. Yeah, right? and the trucks are the real deal. There. Those are pretty dope. I, I went to another place in Utah called Plan B Supply, and they're this is all they do is they build these kind of bulletproof armored. Uh, four-wheel drive, sometimes six-wheel drive trucks. They're, they're crazy rigs. So they buy them, a lot of them they buy from the government. You know, the government retires equipment and they'll just buy, you know, 30 Humvees or whatever and have them delivered to the shop and then they'll put bulletproof plating on Woo! them. Yeah, it, they tune them up. Look these, at that. Yeah, these, these guys are damn. super cool. Uh, How little does your dick have to be before that becomes an option? <laughs> oh, that looks dope though. But so they, what they told me is they said, you're never going to get to the bunker. In a serious event, right? So what you You're need is, is the vehicle ha needs to be your bunker. That one right there. Um, You're never going to get to the bunker? Yeah, no. They, they said just turn the vehicle into your bunker. What? So I, I drove that one there. Maybe you don't want to live. 
You ever thought about that? Yeah. This is what I say. If there's an asteroid impact, I want it to hit me in the fucking face. I really do. I don't want to do this, man. I, you know, I watched that movie. What is that movie with uh, Viggo Mortensen, The Road? I watched that for five minutes. When he was teaching his kid how to shoot himself in the mouth, I'm like, check. I have kids. I'm not doing this. You know, I had, I had a couple of preppers tell me, you know, how you prep depends on what you're prepping for, right? And a lot of them told me if we're talking about an extinction-level event, the caldera, nuclear war, whatever, right. like, they just would run into it. You know, like there's Run absolutely no, yeah, 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 there's yeah. no point in trying to survive that. Yeah, that's the move. Yeah, they're they're thinking more about you know. You gotta restart evolution. That's what it is. Whatever's underground, moles and shit, they just have to start all over again. You know. Well, th- yeah, I mean things that shrews. Things that's where that we were, came from, right? Yeah, things that were underground survived Ooh, previous that catastrophes. That does look dope, though. You know what you like to do if you ever got divorced, mm-hmm. and uh, you just were like seven years old and you had some money in the bank. And you like to do ecstasy? You take that to Burning Man. Hell yeah! Podcast vehicle. (laughs) Fuck yeah! (laughs) Now we're talking. Yeah, yeah. We need one of those. You pick people up and you bug out. We need an airstream, right? We need a like a dope like an airstream. Airstream. Pull it with a get a get a raptor. Pull it with. Pull the airstream. Yeah, I like it. Anyway, those those guys are doing well. They're working overtime. Are they though? Who wants to hang out with them? They're pretty cool. Actually, they're more they're 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 Mormons. And you know what they to, mm. you know what they told me. So I asked them what you know, what what is the plan to escape the disaster when it hits in this vehicle? Like lay out the logistics for me. And they said, "Oh no, you misunderstand. We're bu- we're not building these vehicles to escape the disaster. We're building these vehicles to assist." And actually, they've got a uh, they call it a, a disaster relief crew, um, and they've been going into uh, disasters like um, I think it was Hurricane Harvey. They actually drove the vehicles down, and they were they were rescuing people from the floodwaters. And uh, they told me a couple of stories about you know uh, people who were waiting for FEMA to show up, basically waiting for FEMA to get their act together. And Plan B went down there with their vehicles and essentially just drove past them, as FEMA's saying, you know, you're not welcome here. We've got mm. it under control, and they just drove past them and rescued people and got them out of there. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I mean. You know, they probably have some ulterior motives there it, as Mormons. You know, maybe they're thinking, hey, if we're the ones that rescue these people. I mean, certainly their aid programs are aimed at conversion, right? Sure. Y- you know, if if you send all of this food, I mean, you know. It, missionaries. Yeah, they're missionaries. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I, I started to think of these as rescue rigs with missionary zeal. You know, you're building these to kind of, you know, I you've got I feel like a, Mormons, you could, someone could come in, someone who's like, very influential and logical could come in and talk to Mormons and go listen. Like if the shit hits the fan and you're around a lot of Mormons, you can go listen. You guys got a lot of things right. A lot of things. You're the nicest cult members ever. Like Mormons are so nice. I, I lived next to a Mormon for 10 years. He was so nice. He was a great guy. Um, but out of his fucking mind. You know, he was out of his fucking mind. He really believed that Joseph Smith found golden tablets that contained the lost work of Jesus. But, like, as a human, wonderful. They're some of the nicest cult members. We we all believe weird shit, you know. But that's the weirdest shit. I know, it is Because the problem is they they know who the guy was. It's like L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology. You know who the guy is. We're not talking about like It's not some, a mythology, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's not talking about like like some scrolls they found in Qumran and clay clay jars. No, this isn't the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a fucking book written by a liar who was 14. He was a liar 
and they caught him lying, and he's like, the angels came and took it away. That's what he said. Like, when you <laughs> read the Joseph Smith story, and then he was murdered because he was a piece of shit. Like, it's a crazy story. The Joseph Smith story is not. He, found, he had a seer stone, and only he could read it. Like, it, it is like a 14-year-old's lie. And the fact that it, it's prevalent today in 2020, not only that, that there's literally gigantic groups of them that live in Mexico so they can still have 10 wives, which is nuts. And that Mitt Romney, a guy who fucking ran for president, his family comes from that. Mitt Romney's dad couldn't run for president because he was born in Mexico. Do you know that? No, I yeah. didn't know that. Mitt Romney's whole tribe is from the people who escaped America back in the fucking wagon train days because they told him, hey, you can't have 10 wives, asshole. And they're like, well, we're going to just go over here. Because Mexico was not, it was not that different to be in Mexico or America back when there was no cars or buildings. You know what I mean? Like you have a house over there, or you have a house over here. You have a house over there, you could have your eight wives. So they stayed over there. And then the Industrial Revolution kicked in and buildings and electricity and air travel. And these motherfuckers are still stuck in Mexico. You know, I'm sure you, you know the story about those tr the, the groups of Mormons down there that had a run-in with the cartel yeah. and the families are murdered and the children and wives. That's what that is. Those are the those are the Mormons that fucking Mitt Romney came from. Well, you know, when I I actually looked back at at the history of Mormons in prepping because they're I mean they're the most prepared people on earth. There's no <laughs> doubt about it, dude. They have massive stockpiles. Yeah. And and as you say, like when I went, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of the work that I did for this book was really difficult to get access to these places. Like preppers don't want to talk about what they're doing, right? But when I went to Salt Lake City, they were like, "Come on in," you know. You you want well, they want to bring people into the fold. Oh yeah, they and they wanted me to volunteer at yeah. their factories and whatever. they're the opposite of Jews. Like Jews yeah. make it really hard <laughs> to join. Mormons are like, you can join anytime you want. Yeah, Come right, on in. Right now. We'll knock today. on your door. Yeah. Now they brought me into the factory and they were showing me all the the 25-year cans of, you know, oats and spaghetti bites and, you know, all this stuff, <laughs> flour that they're producing. And they were like, you can volunteer anytime. That's why they have so many wives. They're but, preppers. Yeah. You well, lose one, you have eight more laying around but I went ready to, to go. I went, <laughs> I went to a conference in Salt Lake City and there was this guy there, Dave Jones, who was giving a talk about EMPs. And he says, uh, now, just out of curiosity, how many of you people have basements? And like 80% of the audience what, raises EMP, their hands. What, EMP, uh, that's an electrical an surge? Ele electromagnetic pulse, right, right that, that would wipe out the electronics. power grid. Yeah, yeah, so he was doing kind of a workshop on how you could like turn your basement into a Faraday cage that would protect oh, it geez. from the EMP. And I swear, like 80% of the audience had basements because they're Mormons and, they're, and they've got food storage down there. So then I started doing research on this, and it turns out that there was a there was a guy called Ezra Taft Benson, in during at sort of the height of the Cold War, uh, or the beginning of the Cold War, that was he was served on the uh, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, so he's like he was high up in the Mormon Church, mm -hmm. but he also worked for the Eisenhower administration, and he was he was advising the president on how to prepare for nuclear war. And so he was taught. He was, you know, one of the people pouring honey in the president's ear about like you've got to have fallout shelters, you've got to have food preparation. So all of those Cold War shelters, you know, you think back to to um, 
the Civil Defense Administration and the construction of all of those shelters and stocking them with those those disgusting biscuits and stuff. A lot of that actually came from the Mormon Church. So there's a long history of them being wrapped up with the government wow. on this. Have you ever seen the television show The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? No. It's fucking hilarious. It's a Tina Fey produced it. It's a really really funny show that's on Netflix, but it's based on a, a girl and her friends that were kidnapped into an underground bunker cult. And she lived in this cult for 15 years, and then they rescued her, and now she has to exist in modern society in New York City. It's really, really funny. All but, right, I'm in. But it's based on that. I mean, they're in a bunker, and they think the end of the, the they think the world above them is gone, and you know they're living with this crazy guy, who is uh, what the fuck's his name? Ham. What's that guy's name? John Ham. John Ham. Yeah, he's the main guy. He's the main cult leader guy. So there's a, there's a there's a science fiction novel by this guy Hugh Howey. Um, Wool. Have you ever read that? No. So this it's kind of a similar plot where these people are born inside of a silo that's very much like Larry Hall's silo. It actually freaked me out when I read this thing. And they wake up in there and they, they you know their whole lives exist within here. And there's a kind of social hierarchy, you know, like on the mechanical levels. You've got people doing grunt work, but at the top of this silo, there's there are these screens that are showing you the outside, right? And of course, what you see is a sort of blast-stricken landscape and red sand and, you know, it's, I mean, it's impossible. You know, it's, it's the post-apocalyptic world out there. And of course, people after a while start having discussions about, you know, how do we know that that's a window? Like, what if it's, you know what I mean? Like, because it's cameras that are filming from outside and they're yeah. projecting it onto the window. And when I, was, when I was down there with Larry Hall in the survival condo, he... Um, you know, he turned on the the quote unquote windows, and we're we're looking at the security guard standing out there, and I can see my rental car, and I see his truck, and I'm like, okay. And then he says, oh, you know, most people want to see the outside, but you know, I can I can show you like a beach in San Francisco or whatever. Like he's just flipping through these feeds, right? That are your reality. So it could be like. Terminator. She could show you a scene from Terminator. Dude, you have no idea whether what you're seeing is real. <laughs> and so and so he flips back you to want some more of this? Yeah, thank you. So he flips back to that feed of the security guard standing there and I'm thinking to myself Cheers. Hey, cheers, bro. He and I'm thinking to myself What if that is a recording of, of when I got here, right? And I have right. I have no idea whether that's a live feed. So he I mean, imagine the power that this man wields. Uh, with the seventy, the fifty-seven people that have space in the bunker, right? That once he shuts the blast door, he could tell them absolutely anything. That's literally the plot there. of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. There you go. Well, it's real. And yeah. so here's the here's the really weird thing. I met Hugh Howie, the guy that wrote that book, Wool. Uh, he was like, he's actually sailing around the world right now. He's a fucking awesome guy. You should have him on the podcast. Sounds good, dude. He's really fascinating. But I, he was in he was in the Sydney Harbor, and I was living there. And I, I actually – I just sent him a message on Twitter, and I'm like, hey, I'm at the library right now. I, I think you're in the harbor. You know, you want to hang out? And he goes, yeah, sure. I'll pick you up in the dinghy. <laughs> Me and my girlfriend jump in there, and he takes us out to his catamaran. And, I, you know, the first thing I asked him, I said, look, I, I went to this, this uh, bunker in Kansas, and it, there's a remarkable similarity between this and the fiction that you wrote. And he said, I've never heard of it, right? Um, I later emailed Larry Hall and I said, have you ever read this book? And he said, never heard of it. it. turns out, though, that Hall was building the bunker at the same time that Howie was writing the novel. 
Oh, it's just one of those weird kind of moments. Where you're like, mm. what is it? You know, is it kind of morphic resonance? You know, I'm, yeah, it's exactly. The yeah, the, collect, yeah. the collective consciousness. Yeah, that's that thing where like if a rat learns a maze on one side of the planet, other rats on the other side of the planet can learn it quicker. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, it's kind of concerning in the context of prepping, right? Because yeah. if you've got a lot of people thinking about this way, uh, thinking in this way about about um, uh, a post-apocalyptic world and whether that's fiction or whether it's video games, whether it's novels or whether it's people actually building spaces, you know, the concern is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that comes back to, you know, your question about, well, if you if you spend all this time prepping, you kind of you kind of want the disaster to happen, yes. right? Like you want to you want to test your preps, especially you, as you get older, and you want to be vindicated. Yeah, if you're like seventy, yeah, like in your fucking hips going, yeah, you're probably like, let's let's get this party started. Exactly. Let's hit the, <laughs> let's hit the reset button and see what happens next. Well, isn't that the problem with having a president who's that old too? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, yeah. Isn't the the likelihood of the of them you know just hitting the button and starting the the you know, fabled mutually assured destruction. Well, that's what everybody was worried about with Reagan, you know, and we should probably be equally concerned, especially if Trump gets a second term. Absolutely. I mean, you what, start, you start to become to nihilistic in your old yeah. age and thinking. Plus you're on speed, right? You're yeah. on speed and <laughs> you're, ni- you're nihilistic. And yeah, it's, um, I, I think, mean, pre- I mean, prepping also is something that starts to happen in middle age, right? Because you mm-hmm. you become aware of your own mortality. Yes. Right? When you're young, you're like, I'm invincible. I can do anything. And then at some point, you're like, actually, I need a bit of armor here because I'm I'm not I'm not able to do the things I was able to do before. And I can you can feel yourself declining. I think you probably have a more comprehensive audit of the variabilities or the the the, the variables, the, all the, the the different things that are happening at the same time all over the world. All the different possibilities, all the, the different vulnerabilities that we all have. There's so many things going on. Your own body, the coronavirus pandemic, other diseases that are still here. You know, there's a, a, a new swine flu that they're concerned with that's emanating out of China. Perfect. All kinds of things can happen. <laughs> then China hates us now. You know, we're all, everyone's mad at each other. Iran hates us. I mean, this North Korea is pretty pissed off too. There's so much shit going on simultaneously, and plus natural disasters. And it's hard to know whether there are more disasters or whether there's more awareness of disasters, right? Like, does our awareness of all these things happening all the time and our obsession with knowing about them and ingesting all of that information constantly, like, do, you know, again, does, right. it, does it does it start to manifest because it becomes part of our consciousness? Like, we think. Yeah, the world is in constant chaos. These disasters are unfolding, and then of course they unfold because you know we're all thinking, we're all expecting them. Well, I think that's certainly the issue with social media and the interpretation of the world around us, because the only things that gain that gain any traction are things that are bad. You know, <clears throat> we have in many ways this ancient tribal mind that focuses on threats and the threats of imminent danger that are specific to where you're living are valid, right? If you're, if you're living in a small tribe and you know that there's another tribe that's about to attack, well, that's very dangerous. If you know that there's a storm coming in that's going to wipe out your island, that's very dangerous. But if you're in the middle of fucking Kansas in your multi-million dollar bunker condo and some shit's going down in North Korea, like, how is that even affecting you? But if you're on Google... 
It's going to affect you. If you're looking at your yeah. Google News Feed every day, if you're on Twitter and you're reading about the riots in Portland, you're like, oh, my God, the world's ending. But then you're like, it's like that old Bill Hicks bit. There was a Bill Hicks bit about CNN from, I mean, this is like Bill Hicks wrote this. He did this in like the early 90s. He's like AIDS, war, pit bulls, like all these different things. He goes in, you open up your window, chirp, 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 chirp. He goes, where the fuck is all this happening? Like Ted Cruz is, or it wasn't Ted Cruz. Who's the guy who owns uh, CNN? Ted. The guy who owns the Buffaloes. I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> the fucking Jane Fonda's husband. I know they're on the fuck's his name, man? How do we not know his name? Oh, wow. No. CNN. Jane Fonda's husband, yeah. Ted Turner. Ted, Ted Turner. Turner. He's like, Ted CNN. Turner's making this shit up. <laughs> Jane Fonda won't fuck him, and now he wants everybody to die. <laughs> it, was, it was a great Hicks bit from the early, early 90s. But it's kind of the it's, same it's thing. True, We're not though. designed to take in the threats of 7 billion people. The, the idea of the internet, the idea of this, this rapid and instantaneous... D distribution of information is we get all of the bad news first because you need the bad news you know if, if you said if i came over, uh, over your house and i said hey man what's going on you say everything's good i got a birthday cake you know uh, we're celebrating we got this cool craft beer i got some friends coming over oh and there's a bunch of guys that are plotting to murder us like hey why didn't you tell me that first the murderers we got to get out of here <laughs> we can't we can't drink the, the craft brew and eat the cake. We've got to take care of business. That's, that's localized, right? right? I mean, think about it in the context of the Cold War, right? So, yes. so the nuclear threat never manifested. I mean, we had some we had some nuclear emergencies at, at Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. Right, but the nuclear threat of attack is a perfect example because it brought the world together in an instantaneous fashion. Not instantaneous, but you had a couple minutes. Right? If they launched from Soviet Union, they launched nuclear weapons at us. How much time did we have? We had a couple minutes. And so there was this threat. I mean, I'm 52. How old are you? Oh, how old am I now? You don't even know how old 39. you are? Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> when, when I was in high school, we were really worried. There was this constant threat of nuclear war with Russia. The Cold War was real. Yeah, when I, was, yeah we I didn't would really to, live through it. So, I you know, it's... We would read stuff or we would see something on the news and go to bed. And I remember being a kid, like 12, 13 years old, thinking, oh, my God, we're going to go to war with Russia. They're going to blow us up. We would watch those videos of the fucking experiments with the atomic bombs in the ocean. And be like, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to go to war with Russia. And this is going to be the end of humanity as we know. We know they already did it with Chernobyl we know, or with uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That wasn't that long ago. When I was in high school, that was 30 years ago. Like, that's not that long, you know? Yeah. Now I get you. Did you ever see the, the that photo of Bikini Atoll where they, they do the nuclear explosion? In the and, ocean, and the battleship is being yes. sucked into the mushroom cloud. Yes. Oh my God! It's, it's insane. The most terrifying. They thing. didn't know what that was going to be like either. They thought those ba those battleships were far enough away that they would be okay. Yeah, uh, but you know, imagine the <laughs> the collective psychological damage that did to everyone on the planet living with that everyone. fear. Yeah, you know, and we don't know whether having that fear instilled <clears throat> within us prevented the nuclear war from happening. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the catch twenty two. Well, I think we're in this stage as human beings where we have this incredible ability to send and receive information, but we haven't quite caught up yet in terms of our ability to manage that. Like we, we, we have this insane, unprecedented 
ability to access and send information. It's never existed like this before, whether it's, and also for everybody, right? You could, you could make a YouTube video to, you could have 400 fucking YouTube subscribers and make a YouTube video tonight that reaches millions of people. For whatever reason, you send it to me, I go, holy shit, I send it to Jamie, Jamie sends it to his friends, I put it up on Twitter, some famous person puts it up on their Twitter, and boom, 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 next thing you know, it's it's gigantic, it reaches the whole world, but we, we don't have an equivalent ability to manage that type of information, so it's this new thing, but we don't have the tools in terms of like, this, the understanding and the psychological preparedness. We don't have the ability to to go. Okay, but let's 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 look at this in terms. Let's have let's have a perspective that is uh, that's honest to our environment. Let's have a, an objective view of this. Let's have a balanced version of this information, and let's look at it in terms of like how how we communicate with each other instead of going into full blown panic. Let's treat each individual person as a friend and a neighbor, and collectively, let's manage this. Because that's what's not happening today. When you look at the riots in Portland or Seattle or any of these things like that, what's not happening is the one-on-one communication of people who care about each other. What's instead happening is this massive tribal outburst. One tribe wants to take down the government and, and defund the police and to break into the courthouse and prove that they won. And the other tribe wants law and order. And they're macing each other and fucking launching bombs and spray painting things. And it's like there's very little real communication. There's a lot of screaming and shouting and a lot of tribal behavior. But there's very little one-on-one recognition of each, each other's humanity. No, I think you're right. And I think it's because we're all living with dread. Yes. You know, that we're like we're just saturated with dread. You know, it's I, I was thinking a lot in this book about um, uh, the differences between uh, dread and anxiety, right? Like if you're anxious about something, there's, it's, it's specific, right? You're anxious about a particular thing. Right. Right. But if you if you if you. Uh, feel dread it's more of rather than like an emotion it's more of an affect right it's just kind of a sense of unease that you live with and I think we're dreadful about so much right now that it's it's you know we're we're experiencing a sort of collective psychotic break you know yeah. and so the the inevitable result of that is tribalization mm-hmm. right you're like we I need to find my community that I can hang with that's going to protect me you know, and we're going to come up with answers to solve this problem. So the preppers are one manifestation of that, right? They're like, we're all going to move into our bunker community. And we've got our guns. And we've got our supplies. And, you know, we're going to ride this thing out. And then these rioters are another community. They're like, we're going to burn this shit down. We're going to start over, you know. And so that tribalization is extremely problematic because, as you know, you're right. The conversation we need to be having is a collective conversation about, like, well, what are the threats and how do we address them? Yeah. And there seems to be a breakdown in our ability to have those conversations. And I, I have a theory here that I'll try out on you. Okay. And I think this actually goes back to the Cold War. Prior to the Cold War, uh, we always had a sense that our government was there to protect us, that, that our government would protect us, right? But once we developed nuclear weapons, I mean, it was, it was impossible to shelter everyone from this disaster, right? I mean, I, I think the... The early estimates uh, that were given to the Truman administration were, was that it would be like the GDP of the country for an entire year to build blast shelters for everyone, right? So instead of doing that, 
what we know now, and this was a conspiracy theory in the past, right? What we know now is that the government built bunkers for themselves, but not for us, right? And a lot of the, you know, if you if there's a through line there, that if you move from the Cold War into like the age of survivalists, right? Like the the 80s, you know, when you had uh, Ted Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, right, in his cabin, he's kind of like he he stands as a kind of symbol of this like lone wolf survivalist, right? It's kind of an, sort of an, well, mm. but you know, anti-government, yeah. right? I mean, there are other examples. Bo Greitz, the guy who ran for president on the the uh, I think it was on the Libertarian ticket, he built a community called Almost Heaven, where they were, to, you know, he <laughs> called it a constitutional community where like they were going to stop paying taxes and go off grid. They were going to become uh, uh, self-sustaining, whatever. What you can see with a lot of those survivalists is a sense of um, uh, betrayal that's manifesting in them wanting to break away from the government and build a new tribe, mm-hmm. right? Because they're like, if you can't protect us, we'll protect ourselves, right? Okay. And so now we get we get to today, and we've got 3.7 million Americans identify as preppers now. What? Sel- they self-identify as preppers, right? Uh, and what you hear from a lot of them is – this kind of what we now interpret as a kind of libertarian narrative. It's like, well, I'm just going to take care of myself and my family. You know, it's it, like I'm just going it on my own. I don't, I don't trust the government. Is that one percent? It's basically in the neighborhood of one percent. One percent, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a significant amount of people. I hung out with uh, probably a, I went to half a dozen countries. I interviewed maybe a hundred people, and I. Um, uh, and I was just, I mean, I just got to the tip of this thing, you know, I mean. Do I just, we have the most? Oh, for sure. With, <laughs> without a doubt. Without a doubt. But what country's number but, two? Okay, but look, if you if you contrast this to Switzerland, for instance, where they, they did build the bunkers for the entire population. Really? Right, for 110% of the population, just in case visitors are in town. Wow. The, the whole country can go underground. Right now? Right now. Still functional? Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, you know, I don't know. Some, Isn't it funny that they're neutral and they're like, you don't trust oh, I know. anybody. Let's fucking. But that's, t- I mean, yeah. you know, but once you've, once you've prepared yourself, you've built your defenses, you're able to do that because you're like, yeah, go ahead and attack. Good luck. Yeah, we should you have know? known from their knives that they're preparing for things. <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> you sure. You make a knife with scissors on it and a screwdriver. <laughs> like, what, are you, what are you planning? <laughs> yeah. But uh, North Korea is another example. I mean, that country is essentially underground. They they have um, uh, fleets of aircraft inside mountains. I mean, they got like it, it would actually be incredibly difficult to attack that country because after the Korean War, it was essentially flattened, right? And they learned from that experience, like we we've got to go underground if we're going to survive the next war. Do we have an accurate account of what they have? Uh, no, not at all. Really? But there's a lot of there's a there's a a, a place here in California, an institute called the the Nautilus Institute, and they do a lot of that research where they're just like scrolling around on Google Earth and trying to figure out, you know, is that a vent shaft to a bunker and can we estimate the size of that thing? And wow. it's kind of fun to dig through their website. Because most of it was constructed pre-satellite? Is that what it is? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But there there are telltale signs of a bunker. Can you go Google Earth over North Korea? Uh, parts of it, I think. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, I think parts of it you can look at. Ultimately, but, the entire surface of the Earth is going to be—it's—it's it's going to be mapped out, right? Yeah, I've actually got a friend um, who's been—he gave—he gave a paper at a conference I hosted where he was talking about um, 
measuring gravity from space. And basically you could you could measure the mass or the density of subterranean infrastructures and essentially you could see inside the earth. Whoa. Um, and so he was actually developing a theory a theory for spoofing the gravity measurements. You know, so like you could build a bunker to look like a subterranean river, right? Oh. So you look at it from space and you're like, oh no, that's a geological formation. structure. Yeah, yeah oh. formation. But because obviously a bunker is pretty obvious, you know, if you if you see a giant <laughs> square hole. Would it be ground. possible to spoof it by doing something that would offset whatever signal that's giving off? Definitely. Yeah, I think he had he had three theories for spoofing, and that was another one. I don't huh. remember the third one. But dude, dude, the 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 Earth is already Swiss cheese. There's so much stuff underground. I mean, yeah. but before. Before I worked with preppers, my previous project was working with urban explorers. I spent 10 years in London um, breaking into abandoned buildings, construction sites, and subterranean infrastructure. And we started – so we started by opening manholes and getting into the London sewer system, which is quite cool. It's, you know, uh, 250 years old. Uh, You open a manhole and you climb down a ladder – and then you're suddenly in this this Victorian infrastructure where there's there's I think 318 million hand laid bricks, right? And these and these beautiful tunnels that stretch down. They're gravity fed, and that's how they're cleaned as well. Um, and they're a combined system, so it's fresh water and sewage. How old are they? Uh, these are 18 1850s. So we we went down there because a lot of these used to be subterranean rivers. And we were curious, like, what the hell happened to the rivers? Well, they were all turned into sewers. Oh. So I know. But the sewers are actually – they're not as bad as they sound. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> they're beautiful. They're, they're beautiful. beautiful I've poop got, streams. I've got, I've got photos on my Flickr page and Instagram, whatever. You can go see the sewers in that. London. That's my photo, actually. So that is a sewer in London? How's it smell down there? Uh, that's actually – that's a sewer in Paris. Oh. But that is my photo. Um, there's wow, me, there's that's me, you? There's me climbing a crane. Dude, what are you doing? Why are you I'm doing that? Climbing a construction crane. That's terrifying. <laughs> Do you have a harness on or anything? No. Fuck, bro. Don't die. Dude, this thing. So look <laughs> at this thing right here. This is a. This is a. Um, uh, you know, remember the Concorde jets? Uh huh. This is a a Concorde jet engine testing facility, and we found this giant abandoned factory where they're producing the Concorde engines and and uh, snuck in there, and they later turned that into a set for Stargate. What? And we found like the gate for the Stargate. Really? That they slid open. Yeah. Oh wow. So that's London. That's a London sewer, but that's a newer one. That's a sewer. Yeah. How's that smell? That's fine. It's not big what does deal. that mean? Does it? You have a T-shirt on that says "Do Epic Shit." Yeah. That's over Chicago. Wow. Dude, no, you Detroit. take some that was cool photography. Thanks. What are you using for uh, these photographs? Uh, at the time, I was shooting on a. a Canon 5D Mark III, but you know, yeah, basically I had a big DSLR. Now I've got a mirrorless camera, but they're all they're all tripod shots. That's the Queen Mary. That's amazing. These are crazy pictures. Is this um, in one of those books that you get? You gave me? Yeah. So I I gave you two books. I gave you Subterranean London and London Rising, Mm -hmm. and basically that's a span of ten years from like 2008 to 2018, something like that, um, where we were. Sneaking into all of these places, we were trespassing and, and taking photos. That was like – so these urban explorers, uh, they're interested in – like they see the city as kind of like an operating system, right? Like 
it's supposed to function in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, and they were interested in disrupting that operating system and trying to sort of like get to the code behind the city. Like we want to see the wires. We want to see the tunnels. We right. want to see the construction sites. We want to see how all this shit is functioning. How's the sewage work? Yeah, exactly. When you yeah. flush your toilet, where does it go? Right. And we figured it out. You know, like I went underneath my own house and followed the pipe that came from my house into a sewer that went to an interceptor sewer that went to a pumping station. I walked the whole thing. It was super fascinating to actually figure wow. out how it functioned, right? So after 10 years of doing this, I now have this map of London in my head that is in three dimensions, right? So underneath the sewers, you had um, uh, utility tunnels. So gas, electricity, uh, telecommunications. What is happening there? Water. From a bar? That's, that's me coming out of a manhole into, oh. into an electricity tunnel. Oh. Yeah. That's the electricity tunnel under London? Yeah. Well, there's there's tons of them. So you could just get in there and just fucking chop at those wires if you wanted to? Oh, well. <laughs> you could do some damage. Isn't that weird? It's really weird. It, like someone could just leave a bomb there. Yeah. Right? And, and I, what occurred to me over and over again as, as we were sneaking into these places is that it was really easy. Yeah. And so, we're all, again, we're all saturated by these narratives about – terrorism and people are out to get us and they're all in our cities and there's sleeper cells and we're all in danger and then you know we're going out like you know a bunch of 20 year olds with some with some keys that we bought on amazon and just opening everything up and going into it right and it I don't know. It just it made me feel like I was being lied to. When you're talking the to all threat these, wasn't what was promised. When you talk to all these prepper folks, um, how concerned are they about the power grid, and how many of them believe that the future is going to be uh, being autonomous, having some sort of autonomous power supply, whether it's wind or solar? Or... Well, that's a, that's a. I mean, that's a strong narrative, right? Uh -huh. That like the way we prep now, we couldn't have prepped 10 years ago because technology is facilitating it, right? We've got solar panels. We've got battery backup systems. You know, we've got ways of creating, of going off-grid, becoming self-sufficient that we didn't have before. Um, a lot of preppers that I talk to are really concerned about a, a, a CME, a coronal mass ejection, mm. you know, a, a plasma burp from the sun. Which happens. That sends us – it happens all the time. Yeah. Um, the uh, the northern lights, the aurora borealis is, um, you know, f coming from the sun. It's, it's hitting the magnetic field around the earth and it's creating those lights. So in 1898, there was, a, there was an event called the Carrington event where there was a massive solar burp. Um, and this CME – uh, burned out telegraph lines in Canada, and people in the Caribbean were seeing the Borealis. Whoa. Yeah. In New York City, apparently people were reading the newspaper in the middle of the night <gasps> by, by the lights that were in the sky. <laughs> so what what the preppers were telling me, and actually what I, what I end up reading later in, in uh, uh, both Ted Koppel's book, Lights Out, and also in uh, this book by Toby Ord at, at the University of Oxford called The, Prep, the Precipice is that if we had a, a Carrington-size event today, we'd be fucked. It would burn out all of our transformers, right? We could lose electricity, gas pumps, ATMs, refrigeration, medical equipment, and our vehicles. I mean there's a long list of things that could get totally torched by one of these things. And the most concerning of, of that list are the transformers because uh, they take a couple of years 
to build. Oh, they're actually, Jesus. Yeah, they're really complicated. Um, and of course, like everything else, we've we've uh, offshored their production. So you know, when when uh, when we get hit with that CME and all the transformers are burned out, and then we call China on what we telegraph them or what you know, however we get in touch, and we say, hey, we're going to need uh, <laughs> twenty thousand transformers, and they say, well, actually, we kind of like you being in the dark ages over there. We might just not ship those. Well, anyway, that's also medical supplies as well. Yeah. When we found out how much of our medicine is actually being produced in China, that was terrifying. Yeah. Can you give a lot of it you couldn't get? In the beginning of the pandemic because of a supply chain problem. But that's what I was talking about with, you know, we, we created COVID's pathways, right. right? Like we are creating our own vulnerabilities. And this is something that we've always done since the advent of nuclear weapons, right? Like we're, yeah. we're creating these threats for ourselves. And it's usually in the name of, of economics, right? right? It's like, well, we have to make this more efficient. We've got to make it cheaper. We've got to offshore yeah. it. And we need to go the other way. And I think this is it's, – it's strangely one of the few things that Trump and Biden both agree on, right? Yeah, the resistance of it is the worry that people are going to be xenophobic, right? That's the resistance. The resistance is, hey, we should trade with these other communities and these other cultures and countries. But the reality is if there's something happens and we can't get a hold of anybody that's on the other side of the ocean – we need medicine. We need a lot of electronic supplies. Like, how about the fact that we all have phones? Everyone in this country has a phone. None of them are made here. That is crazy. It is crazy. It's cra- I mean, we obviously have a good supply of them here. I mean, if the shit hit the fan, we'd probably hold up for a year or two. But how long would it take before we can manufacture our own cell phone here in the United States and be self-sustaining? Do we even have the minerals? Do we even have the, the essential minerals that you need? to lithium ion, all the, all the shit that you need to make cell phones. I mean, all, all the, the different uh, Coltan, all the, all, the, all the different things that they need to make a lot of the electronics that we find essential for our daily lives. Do we have those here? Can we get them? We can't even get them out of the ground. It's one of the things that we're doing in Afghanistan is extracting lithium and many valuable minerals. It's one of the things they're doing in the Congo right now as well. It's, that's uh, Vice has covered that. Uh, Coltran, right? Isn't that what it's called? That shit. They're they're literally pulling. It's the, yeah. I've, the, see, I've the seen chain. those 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 lines of miners, you know, yes. going down into the pits and passing bu- Dude, buckets up. What's fucked is they're doing it with sticks in a I lot know. of places. Seem so, you're going from sticks digging into the ground, pulling out these minerals, pulling out these elements, and then it goes into the most complicated electronics the world's ever known. You're, you're carrying these things around in your pocket, and if you could trace it back, that would be a fascinating documentary. Like if someone, even a short one, like a 10-minute documentary from the moment a stick goes into the ground, breaks off the mineral, where the mineral goes. You, you're taking these guys in Africa that are essentially... They're not slaves, but they don't have a lot of other options. I mean, they're, they're kind of in a, a slavery-like situation that those minerals go. Eventually, they go to China. They get brought to these places like Foxconn where they're manufactured into this put – put into these cell phones in these buildings where these people are working 16, 17 hours a day living in dormitories where it's the system is so fucked up. They have nets around the building to keep people from committing suicide because it's so common. 
And then it goes from there to Tim Cook, and he's doing this presentation, smiling, and then it goes to, like, Palo Alto with these kids, like, oh, my God, you have the iPhone 12? It's amazing. The new Zoom, the nighttime feature. And, like, <laughs> this, is, this is where we are. What is that? Oh, there is a documentary. Yeah. Blood. Blood in the Mobile. <laughs> there you go. Blood in the Mobile. 74% like this movie. The other 26% were shitting their pants. Filmmaker <laughs> directly connects cell phone purchases to the Civil War in the Congo through conflict minerals. Conflict minerals. Oh, my God. Great it's 10 term. years old. It's on YouTube, too. Wow. It's on YouTube, too. It's uh, from Denmark. Blood in the Mobile. Well, there you go. Cool. A lot of my ideas suck. <laughs> They're not bad ideas, but they're no, already, but they're already been done. Let's get a new one. been done. Let's go to the other <laughs> end of it. Have you, have you ever been to 35th Street in Manhattan? Yes. Where they're breaking down all the electronics? So there's there's a on this one street there's a whole bunch of warehouses that are sort of back to back where people are getting all this all this stuff TVs cell phones whatever and they're taking it all apart and trying to get those those minerals out of them mm-hmm. right so it's like a kind of um, not recycling but reuse of, right. of some of these things deconstruction yeah I met I met this uh, this amazing artist James Bothorpe a couple of years back and he had this crazy idea he said he said I want to go to 35th Street. And just gather shit from the street and build a boat from it, like Whoa. like whatever he could just cull, you know, and uh, and then he wanted to take it to the source of the Hudson at Lake Tier of the Clouds and paddle the boat back to Thirty Fifth Street and then put it in a dumpster and fly back to England. That dude needs a better hobby. He did it. Why would he do he that? He did it, dude. That seems <laughs> like a waste of time. He's well, I you know paddling. It was a, you know about engines. It was a it was a commentary, you know, on, right. on reuse and recycling and waste and and I. But why would he put it in a dumpster after he's done? He had a perfectly good boat. It's true. Yeah, go fishing with just that left thing. It there. But I went, it. I went with him for the last week of the thing, and it was fucking hilarious. He was just constantly sinking. Like at first we were, <laughs> at first we were trying to bail out his boat because we had like I was in the safety boat and we're going alongside him, and I'm trying to like bail out his boat with a cup because everything we everything that we were using had to be found. Right. So I'd like found this like broken big gulp cup from Seven Eleven. I was like trying to bail. How his come boat they couldn't out. seal it properly? Well, he he. He tried, but it just – he got tired, you know. He was paddling all day and then he would get out at night and then he had to find the shit to fix the boat, mm-hmm. right? So he had to go find some kind of sealant or find a piece of styrofoam to keep mm-hmm. it floating or whatever. Um, it was that's kind of, it right there? there? Yeah. Oh, no, that's not it. That's – that's, uh, I think – I think Setting that was – Setting off in his homemade boat again. from Red Hook. I think Maybe that was a previous – I think that was a previous iteration of the project and then he was kind of hmm. – kind of refined okay. it. That's a weird project, man. Yeah, it was a really weird project. And what's even weirder is he decided to do it in the middle of winter. So in the beginning, he was like breaking through the ice at the source of the Hudson to get to get this homemade boat through the thing. But I can't like we had some hairy moments in in that week. What's going on in that guy's personal life? (laughs) (laughs) Well, now he has a kid and his partner's like, you're never doing anything like that again. Yeah, that seems like uh, there's probably a distraction element there in his his actions. Yeah, he's probably distracting himself from some other things. But I really admire his you know uh, ability to take on that notion of kind of reuse and waste and what what should be done with all of these materials. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah, well, we certainly have an issue with that. I mean, we certainly have an issue with landfills. Our our, our solution is stuff those things into the ground, and the real problem with landfills is you know we talk about. Um, the uh, release of uh, greenhouse gases into uh, the environment and the negative effect it has. 
one of the biggest sources of greenhouse gases is landfills. I mean, they're they're finding when they did this, um, they did like sort of a survey of the like I forget how they did it, but they did it with I believe it was a satellite where they looked at the Earth from the sky and tried to say, okay, what, uh, where are these gases coming from, and what's the the primary source of these gases? And they thought they would be, they thought it would be uh, cattle ranches. You know that these cattle were, were giving off uh, methane, and they found out no, it's not, it doesn't even compare to landfills. Like landfills are just a disaster because it's all this biodegradable shit that's stacked on top of each other, and it's just rotting. Yeah. So it's rotting in this one area, concentrated, and it just. Pfft, just goes up into the sky. Yeah, we've got a family member that actually works. He he does environmental monitoring for landfills, and he Ugh. yeah he was telling me that um, uh, they got a call at some point on this one landfill that that there was a it was it was smoking, and so he drives over to the landfill, and sure enough, like all of the all of the crap at the bottom of the landfill that had been compressed and compressed over time had turned into a, a liquid, and then had turned into a gas, and it sort of ignited somehow. Yeah, and so <laughs> there. He had to um, uh, inject something into the landfill to basically put out this <laughs> subterranean fire, right? And if there, I mean, if there's any better indication of how we fucked everything up, it's a, it's a it's a subterranean fire of, of waste. You know? Yeah, well, waste is a is a great method of destruction, and it actually you can take that back to the Native Americans. Um, they would do buffalo jumps, you know, bu- oh, yeah. buffalo jumps, yeah. and when they would they would corral these buffalo and chase them off the side of a cliff. And when they would land in these great big piles, they would rot and then they would, they would combust. They would just burst into flames. It's, I don't understand the, the whole mechanism behind it, but it's really common that they would find these buffalo jumps. And because of the fact they were all rotting together in this great big pile, something would ignite. And they would burst into flames. And so a lot of these cliff sides where these buffalo jumps are are scarred and charred with just blackened uh, soot and everything from these buffalo just eventually catching on fire. Because, they, you know, they have no preservation back then other than drying it. And, you know, when you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of buffalo, there's really there's not much they can do to preserve all the meat. So there's a tremendous amount of waste involved in this method of uh, hunting. Yeah, but, no, it's it's definitely a myth that, you know— Native Americans were at one with their environment. No. They weren't having. I mean, they were. You know, it, when yeah. when you need to eat, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna drive a hundred buffalo off a cliff. You know, and you might only use three of them. But there's two ways of looking at that, though. There's you could say, oh, it's very wasteful, but also animals have to eat too. Coyotes have to eat. Uh, bacteria has to eat. It, uh, nothing really goes to waste. Yeah, you think if coyotes couldn't figure out how to how to corral all those buffalo <laughs> off the cliff, yeah. they wouldn't do it. They, they certainly would. But they the thing is that. It is wasteful in terms of the human being killing the animal. Do they use all that animal? No, they don't. But I think Native Americans looked at it very differently than we did. I think they had a greater understanding of this whole cycle of life. And even if you leave, if they shot a buffalo and they took whatever meat that they could carry and left the the rest of it there, hundreds of pounds of meat, that meat would feed so many different animals, so many bacteria. It would eventually go into the ground and feed the soil. 
It's, it's only wasteful in terms of the direct relationship between the person that killed the buffalo and did they consume that buffalo. But any animal that gets killed in the wild does not go to waste. Like if someone shoots a deer and they, uh, maybe they, they hit it and it only hits one lung and this deer can go a mile and then dies and they can't find it. Well, that, they, they, they wasted that deer. Well, the person who shot that deer does not get to eat that deer. That is a problem, but it's not a problem in terms of the wild. The wild will consume that deer 100%. Oh, yeah. There is no question whatsoever. There is no waste. It will find a way to – not only that the soil will absorb it, animals will find it, crows will circle. That's one of the ways uh, people find carcasses is like birds circling over carcasses. You know, that's how you find – like if, if someone's looking for someone that like went missing, that's one of the things they look for. They look for buzzards. Or, or crows or birds flying in the air. So these American Indians that did this, in our eyes, they wasted all those animals. But in their eyes, probably not. They probably looked at it like, we're staying alive, and the, the, the great earth has a use for all this. It's going to figure out a way to make all this. It's going to feed something. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think we just have this idea that, like, if you shoot an animal, you should eat that whole animal. And you definitely should. But... Their their idea was this. I mean, we, we we have to think. I mean, I got really really obsessed with Native Americans over the last like year, and I read uh, seven or eight books on them. And the what the world was like before the European settlers came was this spectacular but incredibly brutal environment. These tribes, what they did to each other was fucking horrific. And there was no, there was no quarter given. There was no surrender. No one ever surrendered. That's the thing about the tribes, Indians, that the Europeans couldn't understand. There was, they fought to the death because they knew that if they were captured in their world, if, if a tribe was captured, they were tortured to death in the most horrific way. So they knew that that was coming. And they wanted, no, they gave no quarter and asked for no quarter. They fought to the death, and it was something that the the early American pioneers and soldiers found incredibly remarkable. They're like these people. There's no, there's no give up in them at all. Yeah. Like they thought of these encounters as a fight to the death. Always, either they retreated. Or they fought to the death. There was never surrender. There was no white flags. They didn't even understand the concept of it. Cannibalism was rampant. I mean, it was multiple tribes, different tribes all across the country, whether it was, I mean, there's different different tribes. The Nez Perce had a history of this. A bunch of different tribes who ate each other. They would, they would, <laughs> they would kill other tribes and eat them. I mean, it, was, it wasn't the, what they primarily ate, but it wasn't uncommon. I mean, it was, yeah, because there was a sense that if you ingested somebody's body, you would also ingest some of their power, right? Yeah, there was a lot of craziness to that. There was uh, one story about this guy who uh, was in love with this woman, and uh, he killed her husband and then ate her, and then married or killed her husband, ate him, and then married her. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to Woo! think about. Like, here's a thought experiment, right? If we know that we know that. Uh, that that war wasn't won by soldierly techniques, right? It was won by disease. Some I mean, of it was. I, well, yeah. but, the, but the, I mean, 
the um, up until the Comanches, it was it was catastrophic for mm-hmm. Native Americans, right? The disease that ravaged all these communities. I mean, you can actually see it. There was some, something on the BBC recently that you can actually see a change in the climate based on how many people were exterminated, mostly by disease, yeah. when when Europeans arrived in North like America. Like ninety percent. Yeah, ninety percent of the population. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's an interesting thought experiment to imagine what would have happened if the disease wasn't a factor, right? If that would that war have just raged on for you know forever, you know, perhaps would, would they have carved out? I mean, but I don't know. There was what really changed it though was the Colt revolver and then the uh, repeating rifle. Those two things changed it incredibly because the barrier between Western settlers and uh, conquering the West was the Comanche because they were the first tribe that really understood warfare on horseback, which is kind of ironic because they didn't like the horses were introduced into North America by the Europeans, but they used to be native to North America. Horses were actually orig- they originated in North America, and then but they were exterminated horses- here, right? Yes, yeah. They were well. They, we don't know why. We don't know what happened, and this is part of the hypothesis that goes along with um, the extinction event that happened somewhere around where these core samples indicate that there's asteroidal impacts. It's really fascinating stuff, and there's uh, a great. Uh, well, there's, there's a, a bunch of great books on it, but um, there's a guy named Dan Flores who uh, wrote about all these different – he wrote a great book about the coyotes too called Coyote America. But he wrote about how all these na- these Native American horses were eventually – they found their way to Europe. They found their way to Asia. And so like all the Mongols, the steppe tribes, all the ones that they, they rode horseback, those horses originated from Native America. But then they were exterminated here some way. They don't exactly know how, but then reintroduced by the Europeans. Then the Native Americans started taking over the horses and figuring out how to do combat on horses. And they figured out how to do it far better than the Europeans and independent of the European, independent of even the Asians. Like the Mongols in the 1200s had spectacular horse horse riding abilities and the ability to fight off horseback. But Native Americans appear to have figured out how to do it independently because the people who introduced the horses here, the Europeans didn't know how to do it. So they didn't know how to fight off horses. They would get off their horse to shoot their musket. And the Native Americans would run up on them and fill them full of arrows because they figured out how to shoot literally an arrow a second. They had this spectacular technique of holding their arrows in their fingers. So they would have their left hand where they were holding the bow and they would hold their arrows in their fingers and just one after the other, they had like a fistful of arrows and just go one arrow, two hours, three hours, four hours. And they would just shoot like an arrow a second while these poor bastards from, you know, Spain or France were trying to pump their muskets and put a lead ball in there and they just fill them up full of arrows. It's really crazy shit. God, can you imagine the the panic as you're trying to stuff oh the powder God. and, and stuff go, the ball? And, go, yeah. <laughs> and, they're just fucking, and then you know they're going to scalp you too. So I was, I was, they killed – They literally they couldn't get past the Comanches because the Comanches were the ones who figured out how to do this. And they were a nomadic, really primitive tribe with very little artwork, no songs, no stories. They only ate meat. They only ate, they lived off a of buffalo and they took over a giant chunk of the West. 
all through Texas, Oklahoma, that was all the Comanche. And everyone was terrified of them. What's really crazy is Mexico set up the settlers. There's a fantastic book about it called Empire of the Summer Moon. But Mexico set up the settlers. They said, hey, my friend, come live over here. We'll give you plenty of land. They wanted a buffer between them and the Comanche. So they allowed all these people to think it was okay to build these settlements. And they built these settlements, and the Comanche slaughtered everybody. And then they had to figure it out, like, holy fuck. Like, this, is a, this is a dangerous goddamn place because they were used to these East Coast agrarian Native Americans. These, these ones who like they had set up agriculture and they, they didn't ride on horseback. They didn't do battle on horseback. They did everything on foot. And the Comanche were doing everything off a of horseback. And they had thousands of horses. And all of their wealth was determined by how many horses you had. And so they were this incredibly warlike tribe that everyone was terrified of. All the other tribes were terrified of them. And they dominated this one chunk of the country. And no one could get past them. They literally couldn't get through them. It's amazing I mean, history. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's incredible to think about what we, what we never really perceive are all of the political factions, right? And the nuances and all the difficulties. Because we tend to think about it in, in these kind of, again, these binary terms, mm -hmm. right? It's like, oh, the settlers are coming in and they have opposition from Native Americans. But, of course, they were all at war with each other and they had different alliances and, you know, things were shifting. I mean, I think that's where the that's where the the archaeological archaeological record is really interesting because it starts to reveal these things. Yeah, but it also reveals more mystery, right? Like like there are things that we dig up that we can't explain, right? And there like are, there's no oral history for. Well, I'm thinking of um, uh, I I went to this site in uh, in the in the Yucatan Tulum. Oh. Have you been there? I've been to Yucatan. Yeah. I've been to Chichen Itza. Oh, cool. Fuck. So Tulum is on the coast, like just, yeah. you know, just over from Chichen Itza. And what you find are these like incredibly elaborate structures that are built there. But then um, uh, at just at the end of this, whatever whatever this place was in this, this, this uh, uh, Maya settlement, they started building this really janky wall around the thing. You know, and it's it's like it doesn't it doesn't conform to everything else that's happening on that site. We don't know, the, and these these people disappeared. We don't know what happened to them, right? But one of the theories that I heard is that it was a, it was a virus, right? That the or Makes it was sense, it was right? it was disease, right? And if you don't know what it is, what do you do? You're like, well, it's something's attacking us. We're building a wall. You know, these people showed up, and we're not. You know, um, and so that's one interpretation, but. I, th I thought about this with the bunker builders too, right? That like all of these factions and nuances and people with different ideas about how to combat the dread that we're all feeling right now. Mm. And then if you were like, if you were an archaeologist in a hundred years and you excavated some of these bunker sites, you would find these, I mean, incredibly different sites, you know, places where people are growing, where they're um, uh, building kind of off-grid communities, places with sniper posts, and then you would find these subterranean condominiums, and then you would find, you know, the the the, the shipping containers filled with Bible buckets, whatever, right? You'd have all these different iterations of people responding to the current situation. Uh, and I guess that's, like, I always kind of held this in my mind as I was touring all of these doomsday communities, right? Is that there's, like, there's a future interpretation of these that I'm elucidating now, right? Because a lot of these communities don't like let people in, you know, they don't mm. want people telling these stories. Right. So it, it did feel like I was writing through a historical moment. Um, and that, and that's before the pandemic, right? Like I started this book in 2017. 
uh, by the time the pandemic hit, I mean, some of the some of the quotes in the book were utterly prophetic. I mean, actually disturbing. I, I had um, I interviewed this guy in West Virginia at a place called Fortitude Ranch, uh, Drew Miller. He's got a, a PhD from Harvard, super smart guy. Uh, and his plan is that he's going to build a kind of um, a bunch of retreats around the country. And so you buy into the idea of Fortitude Ranch, like a timeshare. And then if a crisis hits, you can retreat to any of his sort of campuses, you know. Um, and I, I sat down with him to have lunch at one point, and he said to me, you know, what people don't understand is that we're overdue for a pandemic. And when I was editing the book, I so I had forgotten this quote, right? And I saw it again, and I went, holy shit. And then I, I met this other woman in Tennessee that um, – uh, runs a survivalist store out there, and they've got like space in in the uh, in Smoky Mountains National Park that they would retreat to, where they're pr- they're planting secret groves in the forests out there, so they can like retreat to their fruit trees if if uh, things go wrong. And uh, not so secret now. And she, well, yeah, she, and she <laughs> and she told me, I know all, all the all the park rangers are gonna be out there. Where the hell's that orange tree? You know, <laughs> but she told me uh, uh, at one point she said, you know, twenty twenty is gonna be a wild ride. Buckle up. Wow. You know what I kept, I kept reading these quotes as I was editing the book and I was like, God, this is so weird. It feels like I've never I've studied history, I've studied archaeology. I've never had a sense of living through a historical moment quite in this way, right? And a, a lot of this are experiencing this in the midst of the pandemic. Like we know people are going to be I mean, if we still exist in 100 years, <laughs> we're going to be writing about this and thinking about this and interpreting it in more ways than one, right? Yeah. But I mean, but, but just imagine the remains. Civil unrest. Oh, yeah. There's so much going on. And then the Pentagon saying they have recovered UFOs. Oh, God. Don't. Did you read, a, did you was, read all that? That's terrifying. They've recovered crafts, in quotes, not of this world. Yep. What? Yeah. Which there, is dude, that's, fucking that's, bonkers. That's where we're going next. That is what we're going next. I mean, I, I, I wonder if why they're saying that to us. I wonder if they're preparing us for some inevitable encounter and they want to give us like a slow drip of information to get us accustomed to the idea so that we don't go into full shock. Because obviously this pandemic has thrown us into a lot of shock. George Floyd's murder brought us into a a higher level of shock, it appears, because this civil unrest and this demand for a a change in our culture and, and the way we communicate with each other and the way law enforcement works and the way government works. There's so much chaos right now and there's so much so much division. Then Boom. Aliens. <laughs> I mean, it just seems like the nuttiest fucking year of all time. Yeah. I mean, we're all we were all sort of preparing for, the, for the election before Look at this that happened. Quote. Popular off- mechanics. Pentagon has off world vehicles not made on this earth. That is a quote from the Pentagon. That is fucking bananas. I spoke to Commander Fravor on this podcast, who was the uh, is Air Force pilot. Air Force or Navy? I think he's an Air Force pilot, that um, fighter pilot who chased this Tic Tac UFO. Oh, that the, went the one from, that was moving erratically? The went, the... It went from 60,000 feet to one feet above the, of, above the surface of the ocean in a second. They have no idea what the fuck it is. U.S. Navy pilot. Uh, he came on the podcast and described it. This rock-solid individual, military man, lifelong, totally trustworthy, has no other history of crazy stories. This was this is they tracked it on their um, weapon systems. They 
they, they found this thing doing things that defied the laws of physics and their understanding of propulsion systems. They're like, what is this? And then the people in the Navy were saying, we've been seeing these things like every couple of weeks. We don't know what they are. So when they scrambled this jet and these, these other jets came back to support him, they were all trying to decipher this. They're like, what is this? Like, what are, what are we dealing with? And this was, what is it, 2007 when that happened? Four? 2004? So he's been, you know, holding on to this information, trying to figure it out for 16 years. And, you know, people kind of laughed and made fun of him. But there was no other stories like this from him. And then there was some stories from the East Coast. And then a couple of years ago, the New York Times released a story about these things, these credible accounts of UFOs. And now finally the Pentagon's like, yep, um, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> well, check this out. Larry Hall, the guy that was building that, that, con that underground condo in Kansas, um, he's now building a second one, by the way. Uh, I asked him how he made the decision to dump $10 million into this thing. Like what – you know – is that just a business plan? You know, did he did he model that out? And he said, "Oh no, he, he it turns out he used to be a a contractor for the Department of Defense and he was working on projects for them." And he said, "I saw some things when I was working there that made me very uncomfortable." And that's why I'm building the bunker. And I heard that from more than one prepper. I mean, there were a few there were a lot of people that I encountered who had worked for the government either directly or as contractors who had seen things that disturbed them that, you know, caused them to start prepping. And so, you know, I did want, I mean, at the beginning of this project, it was like, you know, it seemed like, it just seemed interesting cult yeah. culturally. Right. Like they're kind of kooky so, and weird yeah. and fun. And, you know, I want to get to know these people and know what makes them tick. And, and by the end of it, I was severely disturbed. <laughs> I got, you know, I got, because because they, oh. they they do seem credible to me, yeah. you know, and it makes it, it forces you to reinterpret what they're doing as as rational, right? And yeah. like these are, I kept saying to people, these are these are rational people responding to an irrational world. Like the problem is not them and what they're doing. The problem is the context in which is driving them to. Well, the problem is our interpretation of them, right? The problem is this knee jerk reaction where we want to generalize and put people in this category. Oh, you're a prepper. Oh, I know what you are. Well, you're not just a human being. You're not nuanced. You're not a unique individual with your own ideas and the life experiences. No, you're a prepper. Put you in that box. Oh, you're a Trump supporter. Put you in that box. You know. Oh, you're. Uh, you, oh, you think Biden should be president no matter what? Let me put you in that box. Like there's there's things that we do with people because it's too hard to really have an open mind. And not take into account all the various possibilities of behavior and, and, and ideas that you could expect from a person. So it's, it's, it's this really normal thing that we do when we generalize. And we, we like to do that. It's, it makes the world simpler for us. It makes it – we like things binary, one or zero. We like good or bad. We, yeah. we like that. Prepper, oh, look at this dummy. Meanwhile, they're right about a lot of shit. And if that guy really did work for the Department of Defense and really did see some things in, when, when it comes to UFOs, like Bob Lazar, who's uh, another guy who's been on this podcast, he's the guy that in 1989 did this story with George Norrie uh, in Las Vegas where it was an, an investigative report where he said, listen, I work for Area S4. I was back engineering UFOs. I was a nuclear physicist for Los Alamos Labs, and they hired me. To go to Nevada, they flew me out to the middle of the fucking desert 
to work on something that's not from this planet. And they were like, oh, you're so crazy. That's so crazy. That's so ridiculous. Meanwhile, 30 years later, Bob Lazar just put up a, a post on his Instagram. Go to uh, United Nuclear Bob, his uh, Instagram. This guy has been dealing with this story and this, this ridicule of the story for 30 plus years. And people said he's crazy. Like, there's, the government does not have UFOs. They don't have something that came from another planet. That's crazy. How would you keep that a secret? But this guy's been talking about it forever. There he is right there. Finally, after waiting 30 years, the government admits to possessing alien craft. Time will tell what happens next. Personally, I doubt they will disclose much more. And wouldn't be surprised if they issue a correction and say their statement was in error. In any case, I never thought I'd see this day. Thanks so much to all of you that supported me throughout these years. On another note, this is the only social media account I have. No Facebook, Twitter, etc. There are apparently lots of imposters out there. So he's United Nuclear Bob on Instagram. And I, I went to dinner with him, and then I had him on my podcast. I talked to him for three hours, and uh, I found him eerily credible. His story has never changed. Over 30 years, he's been telling yeah. the exact same story. I can't, t I can't say that. I know things that have happened for true, that 100%, no, no lies at all that I was a part of that I can't tell you 30 years ago. I can't, I'm not good at, I mean, I'll fuck it up. I'll go, oh yeah, Mike said that. Oh, oh yeah, 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 I forgot that happened first. I go and fuck up the order of events. He's been insanely consistent and he's legitimately really intelligent. Like when you talk to him, he's a, he's a absolute comprehensive understanding of science and of elements and one of the things he talked about in 1989 was this thing called element 115 that back then was really only theoretical they didn't even know element 113 or 115 rather was real until 2013 2013 a particle collider detected it so they proved that it's an actual real thing well he was talking about a stable version of element 115 that they used to bend gravity and propel these vehicles he described how the tic-tac ufo that fravor saw in 2014 worked he said it would turn sideways and then jut off at insane rates of speed that's exactly what fravor said that's what they have video of these things doing this they have the tracking systems of these fighter jets trying to ex explain what these things are and why they move the way they move. Well, this guy's been talking about it since 1989. It's bonkers, man. It is bonkers. And that the yeah. Pentagon comes out in 2020 and tells us that this is real, that they really have crafts that they've recovered that are not of this world. That was their statement. Like, maybe they're fucking with us. Maybe they said that because they want to influence the election. Maybe they said that because they want to take our, our attention. Maybe like, hey, what's the best way to stop all this fucking chaos and all this global unrest, all this uh, civil unrest that you're seeing where people are trying to burn down courthouses? How about we tell them the aliens are coming? Yeah, that's classic Orwell, right? Yeah. Like, you, cre you create the other over here, and then, and then everyone consolidates to confront that thing. I would be lying if I said I understood any of how they operate or how they disseminate information or why they do it and why they do it in the order they do it. But if I was in charge, if I was Trump, I'd make a fucking press conference about the aliens. I'd tell everybody, please settle down. <laughs> They're coming, baby. <laughs> I mean, he did a thing with his son. It's really weird. It's like one of those weird uh, interview uh, shows. It's, it's clunky. It's clunky in a, a, a few ways. Uh, his son interviewed him on YouTube. And it's clunky because his son's not that good at it. 
and it's clunky because they have this strange relationship where you know his dad is the president and he clearly has a, a great reverence and respect for his dad so there's there's not a it's not there's not a balanced conversation but when they're talking about ufos he he, he says i've seen some very interesting things but he wouldn't talk about it hmm. have you ever read the black swan no this is a great book by um uh i, th- I think his name's talib um, and he, basically his theory is that uh, human beings spend all of our time justifying things uh, that have already happened and sort of explaining them away. But those things before they happened were totally unexpected. Mm. Right? So he calls them black swan events. Is this Nassim Taleb? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know who that guy is. Yeah. So, mathematician, right? Yeah, he's a mathematician. Yeah. yeah. So he, so he um, has this theory that, you know, we kind of – Unexpected events are inevitable, right? When they happen, we're all shocked by them. Cue the pandemic, for instance, right? And then afterwards we say, actually, we knew this was coming. We can totally explain this. And then we always make the mistake of preparing for the disaster that's already happened. Yeah. I mean, that's just human nature, right? right? As you think, well, how do we we fix the thing we just dealt with, right? Rather than thinking about how do we we prepare for the impossible thing that's coming next? I don't know. I don't know how we get people to do that collectively, or even push the government in that direction. You know, to think about the possibility of an EMP and these transformers being burned out, right. or, or to think about like what the social, political, economic, you know, uh, fallout is from alien contact. I mean, how do you even, you know, how do you right. even start to work through those things? And when you do, inevitably, people say you're a conspiracy theorist. You're crazy. You can't. Mm-hmm. You can't talk about. It. You can't go down that road, right? But what's the harm? In just running the thought experiment, the harm you know? is ridicule. And just modeling it out. Well, pe- people the people are scared of ridicule because they it can be devastating to your career. I mean, if you're not self-sustaining, if you're not um, if if you if you're not uh, autonomous, right? If you if you have uh, some real connection to an institution and your reputation relies on the respect and trust of your peers, and you say something that's really outside of the norm. And you can just – and if there's some sort of a conflict, an additional conflict regarding your work, they can just dismiss you based on that. It's very dangerous. It's very dangerous to say things. If you have any other – if you have a job uh, where maybe you work for a university but you don't have tenure, if you uh, write for a newspaper and uh, there's a lot of woke people that also write for that newspaper and they're, they're very critical of the way you dismiss certain things that are uh, taken into um, – just the part of the, the the cultural zeitgeist today it's real dangerous because in this day and age everybody's fucking scared yeah. and people will turn on you and if they turn on you it can be devastating to your career you know and sometimes people will say certain things that are controversial or and then that would be the end that will be the end of all of their hard work and uh there's other people that relish in that they relish in dismissing you by one particular misstep or one uh, one controversial perspective, whether it's about aliens or viruses or masks or or the immune system or politics or or anything or the fake news, whatever the fuck it is, it's like people are always looking to step on the other person that's climbing up. It's crabs in a bucket. Instead of uniting and, and sort of working it out together and embracing the ethic of community and of understanding and of of compassion and companionship and the fact that we're all we really we should be 
very rarely attacking and almost always trying to understand each individual perspective. And we don't do that right now. We're scared. There's just social media has put us into this weird position where it's so easy to attack, so easy to be attacked, and so attractive to pile on. And one of the reasons why people pile on is because you want to identify yourself as the tribe that's in the good on the right side. And uh, therefore, you stand up and jump in, jump into the fray when you see anybody stepping out of line, even if uh, they're stepping out of line with something that will, in history, in, in the future, point to like a, a, a an actual perspective that's pretty reasonable. And in, in the time, it's not. In the time, reasonable perspectives right now are very dangerous if they are not in the norm, if they're not what we consider to be this this uh, conglomeration of opinions that you have to uh, have and you have to project. And so there's a lot of people right now that are terrified. And because of these newfound tools and this this newfound, uh, like this is the, this is the real downside of cancel culture, right? It's, it's, there's a lot of people that will secretly talk to you and they'll say, look, I can't say this publicly, but I completely agree with you. And uh, you mean very brave telling the truth, but uh, I have to protect myself. I have a family. I have a this, I have a that, my job at this and that. And once I'm free, then I'm, I'm going to be honest. But right now I can't, I can't jump in. We're, we're, do, we're dealing with a lot of that right now. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I mean, I, I'm an academic. I deal with this. Um, I'm based at University College Dublin. Uh, you know, I have to be careful about what I say, but at the same time, because I do ethnographic research, because my, you know, from the Greek, I'm a culture writer, right? right? Like I'm writing about other people's perspectives fundamentally. Um, and that does act as an effective shield to be able to, you know, spend time with people to be empathetic to their views. You know, anthropologists have a long history of this, of hanging out with people that are committing infanticide or murder or cannibalism or whatever mm. and saying, look, this is their culture. This is what's happening. You know, if you don't agree with it, that's fine. But you know, I'm just I'm passing. You're on, I'm documenting and I'm passing on the information, and we can we can debate it in a different forum. Um, you know, the the work that I've done in the past, particularly with the urban explorers, has got me into a lot of trouble. I, I mean, I got arrested. Um, my all of the people that I worked with ended up getting arrested because the police got my fucking notes. And uh, I mean, it was a it was a terrible. How did the police get your it notes? It was a terrible situation. Well, I so we I was I was going out with these urban explorers into all of this subterranean infrastructure underneath London, and after we went into those sewer systems, then we got into electricity tunnels, then we started getting into bunkers. So these are how like, illegal is this? Dude, stuff? These are like layers under the city. So Im right. you know, imagine there's like you know five layers under the city, right? So we we go from those sewers to the electricity tunnels to the uh, infrastructural systems to the bunkers, and then we started getting into what are called deep level systems, right? And they're 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 very similar to uh, the bunkers that the U.S. government is building here that they call they call dumps, deep underground military bases, right? We started getting into like serious critical infrastructure. Like at some point, how easy was it to get into those? It it took us years. It took us years. <laughs> it was quite a lot of research. But I mean, at some point we got into uh, what are called the, the the BT deep level tunnels, British telecommunications deep level tunnels, and we were like inside the telecommunications trunk for all of the United Kingdom, you know. Um, and at this point, we're like you know a hundred feet underground, one hundred twenty feet underground. We were actually we were walking through 
this tunnel about you know about 100 feet underground and and one of the explorers i was with is like there's a there's a manhole above us i was like what do you what do you mean there's a manhole above us you know we're like we're in the deepest level right now um and we pop this manhole and and a camera swivels you know and stares at us like oh god you know and and then we realized we were into some some critical shit so what what, was it what we it, it was just it was just telecommunication hubs right it's just like the trunk of all of the 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 infrastructure for fiber optics and phone lines and, and they just have an shit. exposed manhole cover and a tunnel that you can get to dude we wiggled through like we wiggled from tunnel to tunnel like through tiny crevices we were getting into like the deep underbelly of the city i mean it was not it was not easy to get to but but here's the thing at the same time we had been cracking all of the the abandoned tube stations metro stations in london right so we took a we took a map of the tube from 1932 and we set a map from uh, 2008 on top of it and what you see are a bunch of stations that are no longer on the map right that's your first clue so there were like 40 some then we then we started doing research and we figured out that there there's got to be at least 14 stations that still have like ticket offices or platforms or there, like there's something there that you could find. So we started sneaking into the tube to go and find these places. Like we would wait till the train stopped at two in the morning and then we would like climb up a bridge and get onto the tracks and we'd run through the tunnels. And we, and we were finding these stations one after another. Incredible time capsules, you know, where there were artifacts left behind, posters, like we'd find tickets on the ground that From were 40, 40 years old, oh. you know. I mean, really cool stuff. Some of the, A lot of these stations were, were bombed out during World War II. Uh, but uh, finding these is like, again, this kind of like, like here's the archaeologist in me, right? Like yeah. we were having this visceral connection to history. We were finding this stuff that was giving us like a real sense of being inside history in material terms. So... We're we're posting every time we crack one of these stations, we post it on our blogs. We're like, oh, we've you know, we've cracked Mark Lane, we've cracked Down Street, we've cracked whatever, and we're all excited about it. And we and like the window's narrowing, and we we get we get towards the end of the fourteen stations, and we're starting to think, you know, like the cops are surely watching what we're doing, right? The British Transport Police. And kind of know where we're going to go next because there's only a few stations left. So we stopped posting stuff. And on Christmas of 2012, we cracked the last station underneath the British Museum, uh, which like there's all sorts of cool stories about like there was a there was a ghost in here. It's a haunted station or whatever. But we did it. We never got caught. So for me, this is the end of the research project. Is there a like, fear I, of being like retroactively – prosecuted we'll, for this stuff we'll get we'll get there oh <laughs> so i'm done with my research project i've written my phd i published my first book explore everything about all of our our uh, or i hadn't published the book yet actually and i fl- i fly to cambodia to work on a totally different research project right like i'm switching gears i'm gonna go do something else and i fly back from cambodia via singapore and the plane lands at heathrow and you know the thing goes off ding and you stand up and you get your bags and then nothing's happening. And they say, can everyone please sit down again? And I sit down and I look out the plane and there's cop cars everywhere. And I'm like, oh, shit. You know, I came from Singapore. Someone brought drugs. I don't know. There's a terrorist on the plane. Like, who? Kn- I have no idea what's going on. 
And the cops get on the plane and they're like, 42K, 42K. Dr. Garrett, yeah, you're coming with us. Okay. So they cuff me. They they have me like retrieve my bag from the baggage claim and they take me through through passport control in handcuffs. And obviously the UK government's like, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and keep that passport. Thank you. So they eventually charge me with um, conspiracy to commit criminal damage. Now, what's weird about England is that trespass isn't a criminal offense. So you can't you can't charge people with trespass unless you're in very specific circumstances. So they tried out this charge of conspiracy to commit criminal damage because it's it's about intention. It's a thought crime. Like if I text you and I'm like, hey, dude, uh, you know, the bar is closed right now because of COVID. You want to break in and just like pour ourselves a beer? And you're like, yeah, let's do it. Like we've committed conspiracy to commit criminal damage. Mm. Like we've committed to the crime. So uh, anyway, we for years – were dragged through the British legal system, and I got trapped in the UK for three years. Well, I, yeah, I was. They kept my passport, dude. I was trapped there. And here's where it gets really weird: is that when the plane landed at Singapore, there was a a journalist from GQ who was supposed to meet us because we were going to take him into some of this subterranean infrastructure and show him all these spaces. And he's like, you know, by the time I got out of jail, like 48 hours later. Um, I had I had all these messages from like you asshole. I came, I showed up at the airport and you weren't there and whatever, you know. <laughs> and I finally find this guy Matthew Power, and and he's like, "Are you serious? Like you got because we had timed it to land at the same time." Yeah. And he's like, "You serious? You got arrested at that moment?" And he said, "What about your house?" I said, "I have no idea." So we go to my house, and we unlock the door with these keys that the police had given me because they took down my door with a battering ram, Ooh. right? And then you know like put some padlocks on there that they drilled into the the door in the door frame. And I open it up and my apartment has just been ravaged, right? Like stuff everywhere. The mattress is flipped over. All the cupboards are torn apart. There's like pieces of the door all over the floor. And underneath all of it, there was a, a job contract from the University of Oxford to do a postdoc after I, because I just finished my PhD. And the journalist from GQ is like, dude, I can go home right now. I've got this story. I don't need to explore anything. I'm done. <laughs> and how did it resolve? Well, the um, by the time we got to court, I mean, the, the, the prosecution was just in shambles. I mean, it was a total debacle because there was no evidence that we had broken anything, you know. Or because of their laws, anything. you had just trespassed, which is in the law. We just trespassed, yeah. But they spent, you know, 300,000 pounds, I don't know, $400,000 of taxpayer money to run this prosecution. So they were going to see it to the end. And essentially, um, you know, they got they they confiscated my computers, my hard drives, my notebooks, and uh, that was a, that was a central component of the evidence that was used to prosecute everyone. So essentially, like I just made a deal with them. I was like, look, I'll I'll take a hit, you know, if you just, like if everyone else can just get off, you know, I'll I'll take the hit for it. So I pled guilty to. Uh, uh, I think it was four counts of criminal damage, which included damage to a screw from a board that I had taken off and put back on to a vent shaft. Ooh. I know. Slide, sliding open a window. Oh, that was aiding and abetting. So I had opened a window for someone to crawl through. 
I mean, it was just like a list of ridiculous things, but they didn't care because they just they needed their they their, needed a win. They needed a win, you know. So I gave them that. But now I've got now I've got this criminal record in England. So when you land, do you, you get pulled aside if you go to England. I, I used to. I actually filed a complaint with the government, and I, you know they would like severely harass me. And then when I moved to Australia, I had the same problem. Like they had put flags on my passport. Um, and you filed a complaint, and did it go through? And I filed the complaint, and they fixed it. They took the flags off the passport. Yeah, oh. essentially saying like you know, I did my thing. You know, yeah. Like, why do I have to keep paying for this yeah. over and over again? So, but it was really funny you? when I tried when they when they originally gave me my passport back. So, like, I go to court, and then they're you know. The judge is like, Dr. Garrett, you're very naughty or whatever. You know, here's your, here, take your passport back. Do they have wigs on? Yes. Really? Yeah, the wigs are fantastic. Really? Yeah. They still do that? Yeah, they still do that. They're really wow, good. Wow, that's real. Yeah. Yeah, the barristers all have their wigs and they, ca- they, ca- they carry them around like a, like a cat, you know? And then they have to put it on and when they they're doing that. They have to put it on to do that. That's fucking thing. bonkers. But so, I, so they give me my passport back and, I, and I, the next day I was supposed to fly to Sydney to go speak at the, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. I was the obvious speaker, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I go to the airport and the, the guy swipes it and he's like, oh yeah, you don't want to use this. I was like, what, what, what does it say? What does the screen say? And he's like, I, I, can't, I can't relay that, but you should probably go. <laughs> it gives me a passport back. And then I – You should probably leave the yeah, country? No, like you should not get on a plane with this. Like you're going to have a problem on the other side. You know, whatever he well, saw. Well, how else screen. can you travel? Well, exactly. So then, so then I, I missed my flight. And I had to go back. I had to go to the U.S. Embassy. And I'm like, you know, I've, I've just tried to fly with my passport and it doesn't work. And the guy at the embassy swipes it and he says, oh, wow. And then he, <laughs> and then he gets out a hole puncher and he goes, dunk, 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 right through my passport. And he says, I, you shouldn't use that. And then like three hours later, they gave me another passport and I flew out the next day. And the passport's good. The new one's and good. It's fine. Yeah. Wow. But then, I, but then I started getting stopped again. So they like, st- I don't know, tacked the flags on there later. God I mean, it was damn. a real ordeal. But, the th- you know, the thing... I mean, it was it was it was traumatic for me, of course. I was like stuck in a foreign country, and you know, like you get worried about your income. I was worried about being. De- they did try to deport me at some point because once you have a criminal offense, they can right. try and deport. You. So anyway, I beat that down. Did they find but, you? Like, what was the ultimate judgment? Yeah, it was. I think it was two two thousand pounds, about three thousand dollars. I got fined. Um, not yeah, not too bad. It's not a big deal. I'm sure, you made some money off the book. If not, you're gonna make some now. <laughs> You know what, dude? I I made I made uh, all the money that I made on my first book, Explore Everything, went to my lawyers, who I have to say were phenomenal. Like they did a great job. But it was like every time I get a royalty check, I just sign it over to them, you know. And it did seem like karma. It was like, well, I broke into all this shit, and then I wrote a book, and then the money went to the lawyers, and the lawyers got me off, and it all kind of worked out. Well, tell everybody again the names of the books. Let's sell some books for you here. Sweet. Because the the book really has some amazing imagery, specifically uh, particularly the underground shit. Yeah. Okay. So the so the first book that is all about my time with the urban explorers and uh, our trespasses into the underground and also into skyscrapers and abandoned buildings that was called Explore Everything. I wrote that in uh, that was published in 2013, and that's there got it is yeah, Explore the, Everything. That's got the whole story of the court Bla- case. Bradley and, Garrett, not to be confused with the giant person from Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> 
I will <laughs> topple his Google ranking someday. I promise. You're 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 getting me closer. Subterranean to London. That's your second book. Yeah, Subterranean London is the second book. So that's those are those are all of our photographs over ten years. Of Amazing the, of photographs the, too, of the, by of the way. The subterranean layers of London. So. Just spectacular shit. And then uh, London Rising is the third book. Oh, actually, so, scroll up there. See. Scroll up in the image. See at the top there? That's us climbing into an abandoned tube station. Up left? This one right here. So we're cl- like, like actually. That one? Yeah, that's climbing in, into uh, the new crossrail. That they, it's just so that weird just that all that stuff is open. It's not. Uh, well, it's it not c- anymore? It kind of is. Kind of? Did it's they do anything to tighten it down after your books? Uh, they try. Okay, let's we keep got, it. We got really good at breaking into things. We, I mean, you know. Right. This is a this is a skill you build, Bradley. Thank you very much, man. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> we just went through three hours, if you can believe it. Are you serious? Yeah, it's three forty. Wow, it's a time warp in here, right? <laughs> it's crazy. People always say that, like, "What the fuck?" That is so weird. Yeah, it was a fascinating conversation, man. Very thrilling. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That was a lot Thanks of fun. Thanks for being here, man. I really Thanks, appreciate Joe. it. I yeah. really enjoyed it. What a great invitation. Thank you. Bye, everybody. 